Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time now for the Character and Smallman podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. everyone and welcome to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carriker with you. Time check 701 brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Good morning, Michelle. How are you doing? Good morning, Randy. Uh, a little behind the curtain. Just before we came on the air, we were talking about monkey, monkey pox. pox. Yeah. <laughs> and if you see a picture of somebody with the monkey pox, it is summarily unattractive. And you can't blame somebody for getting the monkey pox, but it's just another scary thing that's happening in society. It's unbelievable. So I saw a headline that the first reported case of monkey pox had come to St. Louis. So I was Googling it last night. And you can get lesions not only externally all over your body, but internally, which sounds so incredibly painful. It sure does. And you think about how it could just take over your body. It really is a scary proposition. So... If you uh, can, I don't know how you would, no, but avoid the monkeypox. I think there's a vaccine out there that some people, uh, especially in New York, where uh-huh. it's becoming more prevalent or getting. Um, but it's just one more thing we got to worry about. I mean, the world is on fire. We've got Literally. COVID. We've got monkeypox. Everyone's getting shot. Like, what is going on here? It is remarkable. I- I've been talking to so many older people. Now, you're a lot younger than I am, but you spent a lot of time outside as a kid. Oh, yeah. Was it this hot? Never. So I remember it being hot, but never to wear as a kid that I wouldn't want to play all right, day right. long. And maybe that's as a kid, your desire to be outside with your friends is greater than your awareness of the heat. But I, I don't remember it being triple digits consistently for weeks at a time. I just kind of get the feeling that the ozone layer is gone. And my skin, when I go out, and it's like this, granted, it is super hot. It's supposed to be 104, I think, on Saturday. Oh, my goodness. But I think the, the ozone layer is gone, and it causes your skin to burn, and then you get... It's so damn hot. So Milk was a bad choice. So just be careful out there in the house. I think we may have a, an extreme heat warning. I'm I not think sure. so. I think we do. But uh, it feels hot enough to have one. So anyway, that's that's part of the day is monkey pox and extreme heat warnings. But also we've got fun things like Greg Amzinger coming up at the bottom of the hour. Uh, it's July 21st. There's probably no hockey to talk about with Jeremy Rutherford, our blues insider from The Athletic. Oh, no. It's not like Matthew Kachuk has informed the Calgary Flames that he's not going to sign with them long term and that a <laughs> trade is likely. <laughs> A trade is likely. Here's the thing. I was reading a piece, again, in The Athletic yesterday, and boy, do they do a great job on all sports, but they kind of started as hockey. They're so good. Yeah. And I 
So this piece that I was reading suggested that the Flames would accept Vladimir Tarasenko and take on his salary and and have Vladdy for the year. But I wonder if Vladdy would be willing to go to Calgary. It doesn't seem on the surface like that would be an ideal scenario for him. But also it depends on how desperately he really does want out. Right. And... I know that last year was seemingly copacetic between Vladdy and the Blues. It seemed like there was no tension. He seemed to really enjoy himself. He certainly uh, was productive on the ice. But we don't really know how someone felt behind the scenes. And we don't really know how the Blues felt about all of that. So there could be things percolating that we're not aware of. And maybe he really does just want a change of scenery. And Michelle, we both heard this. Doug Armstrong, especially when it was with Alex Petrangelo, and he wouldn't give Petrangelo the no movement clause. People ask him, well, you give people no trade clauses all the time. And Army has said consistently, I have never been prevented from making a trade because of a no trade clause. So whether it's being able to talk Vladimir Tarasenko into a trade or just being able to spin it so that the player thinks, oh, this is great. I get to go to Calgary or I get to go to Philly or whatever. He Army says that it's never preve- prevented him from trading a player, having a no trade clause. Well, this I wonder... Big test. <laughs> I was say, I wonder if, if this is going to be the same scenario. We're about to find out. But there's yep. there's a list of cities that Matthew Kachuk is allegedly interested in, yep. and it's not just it's not a one city list. People. Dallas is scary. Yeah. I don't know what Dallas's system looks like. I know they have picks, but they have cap space. They have an attractive market, and that's one of the markets that he would be willing to go to. We're also going to talk to John Hackworth. He is the director of coaching for St. Louis City SC. Randy Wilkins is the director of the new ESPN documentary, The Captain, about Derek Jeter, which is really, really good. And then in the 9 o'clock hour at about 9.15, we're going to talk to friend Rocky Sickman from Folds of Honor. And if you aren't aware of what happened in our country back in the late 70s, early 80s, we had 444 days of a hostage crisis with 52 Americans in the American embassy in Iran. And Rocky was one of those hostages. So we're going to hear part of his story and also talk to him about Folds of Honor and also how sports benefited the hostages Mm -hmm. in Iran back at that time. Michelle, we're going to get things started with this. The Cardinals get back underway on Friday in Cincinnati. They're going to take on the Reds. I don't know if I, I don't have it ready. Darn it. Idiot Randy. We're on to Cincinnati. We're on to Cincinnati. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Maybe we do have it. Let's just look. We're on to Cincinnati. Yes, yes, we do. There we go, Bill. But, Michelle, if the Cardinals don't win the division, and at the moment they're a half game behind Milwaukee for the division, let's leave the wild card out of this because the division winners get buys. The division winners, well, the top two division winners get buys, but the division winners have a distinct advantage. Sure. But the Cardinals came into the season with Ali Marmol saying it would be a disappointment if they didn't win the World Series. And, we have Nolan Arenado last week saying, hey, I'm, I'm tired of getting wild cards. I want to win the division. So if the Cardinals don't win the division, then I would suggest... Get you a fall guy. Yeah, uh, you, you got to get you a fall guy. Who pays the price this year if the Cardinals don't win the division? Do you think winning the division is enough for there to be a fall guy? I do. You do. See, mm-hmm. I was thinking more or less that if they get into the playoffs and they were to make a little bit of a run, all will be for- forgiven, even if it's a wild card scenario. But to me, it's to me, it's more or less if you don't get to the NLCS, there's going to there a price will have to be paid. And I think we need to look at this realistically. At this point, even if the Cardinals win the division, it's going to be just like being a wild card team because the top two 
division winners with the best record, they get the bye. And then the three wild cards play, and the fourth wild card comes from the division winner with the worst record. So the Cardinals, even if they win this division, right now the Cardinals are eight and a half games behind the Mets, 12 games behind the Dodgers. I don't think they're catching up to those two teams. So my thought process is, is that even if the Cardinals wind up winning the Central, they're going to have to be essentially a wild card team. So my thought process is, if the Cardinals do win the division, but they get bounced in the DS, mm-hmm. that will not be enough for Cardinals fans. If you if you have well, a first round exit, regardless of what round it is, that is not going to be enough for Cardinals fans. It won't be enough for Cardinal fans. But I do look at Bill DeWitt's annual statement is that we're trying to win the division. We're trying to compete for a division title. But because of what, the, especially Ali Marmol said, because of where the Cardinals are, and I think public perception of the franchise right now, I think that they would look for a fall guy. And I think it'd be Mike Maddox. And I don't think it'll be because of performance. Right now, the Cardinals third in the National League in earned run average. They've been good ever since he's been the pitching coach. Last year, he resurrected Jay Happ and John Lester after the Cardinals got them. Adam Wainwright has continued to pitch very well and come back from an injury to pitch at an exceptional level. But if the Cardinals don't win the division, I think Maddox will be the fall guy for two reasons. Number one, big money failures like... Andrew Miller, KK, Carlos Martinez. The fact that he couldn't get those guys that the front office deemed as talented players to perform at their highest level. I think that would be one thing. Then I think the other reason, and this might be the biggest, is the injuries to Alex Reyes and Jack Flaherty. And I think a lot of times mechanics lead to arm injuries and especially shoulder injuries. And I don't think that the pitching coach deserves any blame for this Mm -hmm. at all. But you've had Michael Walker with his injury. You've had another young pitcher in Dakota Hudson with his injury. And I really do think that the Cardinals will look at that, look at their young people, young pitchers that haven't been able to pitch and look at the pitching coach and blame him. This being said, Michelle, there's one other X factor that goes into this. And I don't think it'll be the front office's choice. I don't think it'll be Bill DeWitt's choice. But I do think that there's a chance if the Cardinals, let's consider that a failure if they don't make it to the NLCS. Okay. Is that fair? I think it's fair. If you come out in spring training and say your expectation is to win the World Series and you can't even get to the championship series, Mm -hmm. by definition, that's a failure. John Moselak's been doing this for a long time, since 2008. Yes, he has. He has watched the general manager slash slash Pobo job turn into a 24-7 job. Now, he's been around for 14, 15 years, right? 2008 to 2022, that's 18, that's 14 years. If you look at pictures from John Mozeliak, the day that the Cardinals lost Albert Pujols to now, he's aged pretty dramatically. Now, that's in large part because of the fact that in 10 years, people age. But there's a lot of pressure on those guys. And I wonder if at some point, Mozeliak might say, you know what? I've won my World Series. I've been to a couple of World Series. I've maintained this storied franchise for 14 years, and I've just had enough. I, and I'm going to go. I'm going to get kicked upstairs mm-hmm. even further. I wouldn't be at all surprised if something like that happened either. I wonder if it would happen this season, though. And I'm with you, Randy. I wonder how many more years John Mozeliak has it in him to be the Pobo because it is a very grueling job, and he's done it for a very long time. And at some point, you're like, 
I have a great body of work and I am at a point in my life where I want to enjoy it. I want to spend more time with my family. I want my life to be more than just this game because people don't want to realize this. If you're John Mozeliak, this is a 24-7, 365 day a year job. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's Christmas. It doesn't matter if it's your kid's birthday. That phone is ringing if people want to make a deal or if you have something that you need to tend to. It's right. just how it is. But I do think one thing for sure, Randy, is that that will be his decision. Oh yeah, no John doubt. John Mozeliak no will doubt. go out on his terms. He will not have that decision made for him. And, that's, and, and when the team has... Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt and maybe another year of Adam Wainwright. I just wonder if he might extend that window a little longer. But I think that people that don't like Mo, you're out of luck here because I Mm -hmm. think he's as safe as safe can be. And I would throw one more thing into the mix here with Mo. When I talk about the pressure and dealing with it, the Cardinals are... Obviously, their fans expect the franchise to win every year, but so does the owner. If you are the Pobo in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, in your division, if you're the if you're Kim Ng with the Marlins, if you are the general man or the the, the Pobo in Baltimore, if you're the Pobo of uh, the Anaheim Angels, not a whole lot of pressure there. But when you are expected to have the franchise win every single year, and Mosaic's teams have never had a losing record. When, when there is no tanking and you don't go into a season, yeah, we're going to lose 95 games. That's a different kind of pressure that you're facing to win every single year and therefore every single day. Yeah, this is a fan base that didn't sell out Bush Stadium for the NLCS yeah, right. because they didn't appreciate the quality of the team and yeah. didn't think that the outcome would be good. The, the standards are vastly different than they are elsewhere. Um but when it comes to who will pay the price, who will be the fall guy? Get you a fall guy. Get you a fall guy indeed. It's not going to be John Mosellock. It's not going to be Ali Marmol. I think your suggestion of Mike Maddox is interesting because we've seen with Mike Schilt that performance is not the dictator of who might go. Because Mike mm-hmm. Schultz was mm-hmm. very successful as the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, but they de- decided that he wasn't on the same page as them philosophically, and therefore a divorce needed to happen. But when you talk about John Mosellock and how many years he has left, there has to be an heir apparent to John Mosellock. And I wonder if, wonder if Michael Gersh really is that guy, because he's been in the fold for many years. He's the general manager, but we never really mm-hmm. hear from Michael Gersh, and we never really see him getting any praise for anything. Whenever a move is made by the front office, when the Cardinals went out and acquired Nolan Arenado, it's not, wow, Michael Gersh, the general manager, really fleeced Colorado. It's, wow, John Mozeliak, I can't believe he got Arenado, and they paid him to take him. It's never Michael Gersh that gets the credit, and there's no correction by the Cardinals that, actually, this is the general manager that's wheeling and dealing and making these deals, which is different than most other organizations where the general manager is firmly in the driver's seat when it comes to these acquisitions. So I don't wonder if, and this again, probably has no indication as to performance, but I wonder how safe someone like Michael Gersh is. If if John Mosellock is not the guy that's going to take any heat, that leads me to believe that someone in the front office might be susceptible to being the fall guy. And in addition to what you say, the fact that Randy Flores is forward-facing because he was the front man for the draft the other night. Impressive guy, clearly a smart guy, clearly a good baseball guy when you look at the way the Cardinals have been drafting. And you might be in a situation where you say to yourself, if you're the Cardinals, 
I don't want to take a chance on losing Randy Flores. He's too good. I need to promote him. Mm-hmm. I could definitely see what you're thinking play out. I, I could absolutely see that. And a lot of people in the Air Comfort Service text line 65780 are screaming at the top of their lungs, why aren't you guys talking about Jeff Albert? And at least in my opinion, Randy, I don't know where you fall in this. They have doubled down on him so hard and organizationally have doubled down on his teachings and his philosophy that unless we have a month in the second half like we had in June last year, I think that you had Tyler O'Neill injured, you had Harrison Bader injured. I mean, there's a lot of things that could go into the Cardinals' reasoning why they would keep him around. I agree with you, and I believe you're correct that he won't be the fall guy, but I think it'll be primarily because of ego. Because I don't see how without an ego, without investment in Jeff Albert, if you just look at it rationally, coolly, unemotionally, and you read about Matt Carpenter's winter in changing his swing, and then you see the results of Matt Carpenter after you spent $38 million over two years Mm -hmm. with him being terrible, I don't know how you don't go to Jeff Albert and at least ask, hey, what happened here? Why are people like Joey Votto and Matt Holliday able to fix this guy and Marucci with the bats and Tim Laker, a former catcher who couldn't hit? Why are these guys able to fix Matt Carpenter and we can't? We, we were spending the money on the guy and he had to go rebuild his swing by himself. I would ask Jeff Albert, why? <laughs> why, why, did, why was Carpenter able to do that successfully on his own, but we couldn't do it? Right. Um and I don't think it's just Matt Carpenter who has sought outside counsel mm-hmm. and seen results. No um, however, your point about ego, I think, is very well taken because Craig Bre- or excuse me, um, Doug Armstrong had said very publicly for a while, Mike Yo is going to be Ken Hitchcock's replacement. This is my selection. He's going to be the guy. And after a half a season when he saw it wasn't working out, he pulled the plug. He was not mm-hmm. afraid to say, I made a mistake and I am not going to waste the talent of this team on a mistake that I may have made. And he instilled Craig Berube as the head coach. The rest is history. But I think it's very rare for someone in that position to be so willing to admit, especially early on, even though we have enough of a sample size of Jeff Albert, that I made a mistake. This one's on me. I'm going to wear it. It didn't work out. The other part of this, if you are in the Cardinals' shoes, if you're in Mosellock's shoes and you are invested you're trying to convince yourself that the guy is good. And you say, well, only five major league teams have more runs than my team that he is the hitting coach for. But we aren't just looking at those runs. I think you also have to look at the inconsistency of the offense. And it's hard to put together great runs of offense in 2022, the way pitching is. But just looking and focusing solely on the Cardinals, I look at individual performance, and I think that's what he should be responsible for. Look, Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, Yadier Molina, Albert Pujols, they aren't listening to, they aren't listening to any hitting coaches. They've got their thing set. They're, they're right. So I want to know why Andrew Kisner has regressed so much. I want to know why, before he got hurt, Tyler O'Neill took a step back. Why Harrison Bader took a step back. What has happened with, with Dylan Carlson? We watched him working with Albert Pujols on a daily basis, not Jeff Albert. Why is he ascending right now? That's what I want to find out. And by the way, I'm going to give Jeff Albert credit for Tommy Edmond because Tommy Edmond's playing great. So you got to give credit where credit is due as well. But I just want to know why more individuals who, and he's the individual that's charged with making all of those people better. Why aren't more individuals ascending as young players? Let me pose one more question to you before we go. 
If the Cardinals don't make it to the NLCS, what if no one pays the price? What if everybody is safe and the Cardinals continue on? Status quo. I I would suggest that we would reach a point then where the people that are paying the price for tickets probably would get a little bit bothered. And and the, the people that would pay the price, that are paying the price now, wouldn't be paying that price for entrance into the ballpark next year. So the wallet pays the price. Yeah. Ultimately, that's Michelle. I'm Randy. And coming up next on 101 ESPN, sick of it. Get your text into the air comfort service text line 65780. Sick of it coming your way with Carriker and Smallman. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I'm over it, Sharon. I can't take this no more. I am done. I am sick of it. Do you hear me? Sick of it. I can't take it anymore. These people are the worst. Character and Smallman are sick of it. We appreciate your text to the Air Comfort Service text line, 65780. Michelle, Matthew, and Randy. And Michelle, I'll tell you what. You know I have a routine since we started doing the mornings a couple of years ago. We do the show. We put together tomorrow morning's plan after the show. I get out and ride my bike or go play golf or something, then come home and eat lunch and then go out and do something else outside during the summer months especially. I I love to be outside and I hate to waste a day where the sun is shining. It just really bothers me. But now... It's so damn hot. Milk was a bad choice. I can't get outside. This is brutal. This is brutal for me. And I I would much rather, I mean, 30 days out of 30, I would much rather be outside riding my bicycle than being inside in a gym. I just hate the fact that it's really too hot to be outside. And and by the way, kudos to all of you people who are working outside. We just had our siding done. And, And if you are working outside, you are a much tougher individual than I am. And we all appreciate your hard work and what you're doing because I'm not strong enough to be what you are and what you're doing. Uh, thank you yeah. to all the workers outside. You guys yeah. are the best. Yeah. I was thinking about that yesterday. I was I was driving by a construction site and I was thinking if you know how the sun takes it out of you. Mm-hmm. I'm like when these people go home, do they just eat something and fall into bed? I'm sure by the time you get out of this heat and you get home from your job, you have nothing left. No, no doubt about it. And we have, as we just applauded you, so we do have a great deal of appreciation for those of you that are working outside because it's hard and it's really bad now. Yes. Randy, I am sick of the baseball schedule and I'm sick of the season being so long and that the fact that baseball hasn't done a better job of figuring out a way to get us all exposure to the stars in the league. The home run derby in the All-Star game is so fun and it was just a reminder to me of the great young talent and really just the existing talent in baseball that I don't get to watch on a regular basis. Michelle, I've always thought, and I know there's a lot of people out there that hate ESPN for various reasons, but the fact of the matter is there is a generation of people, even though there's a lot of cord cutting that's gone on, there are a lot of people that their go-to, my first go-to when I turn on my spectrum is 800. I, I go to ESPN. And if you go to 800 during the winter, now you can find NBA or NHL. You don't have to search for the NHL mm-hmm. anymore. You have to search for baseball because there is no baseball on ESPN. And I think that's one of their problems. Remember, you might not remember this. Back in maybe 15 years ago, I'm sure your dad watched this. 
rather than Sports Center every morning during the summer, it was Baseball Tonight on ESPN. Yeah. They would record it at night and they'd replay Baseball Tonight every hour until like 10 or 11 in the morning. I was actually at in Bristol when they kind of sunsetted that because yeah. they used to record it super late at night. And it was, I always, because I worked at night at the time and would always walk by the Baseball Tonight studio yeah. when they were recording it and it was so cool. Right. And now that doesn't even exist. Baseball Tonight is only on Sunday night. So I think one of the problems baseball has is in trying to enhance their revenue in going to put national games on TNT or FS1, they've gone away from the place where people are just going to accidentally run into it. And you're not going to talk about baseball really on first take. They have nope. an NFL show that airs every day. They have the NBA show that Malika Andrews mm-hmm. anchors that's now on all the time, if not every day. Um, they The other sports are getting constant love because if you have those shows every day by the way that means that those sports are going to be in the headlines every single day and that's how you draw the casual fans the hardcore fans greg amsinger is going to join us in a moment hardcore fans are going to go to mlb network and find their baseball what you need to find is the people that wouldn't ordinarily go to baseball but it 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 runs into them and so they say oh this looks cool this mike trout guy this shohei otani guy this julio rodriguez guy they're, they're cool but that's what I'm sick of. Yeah, I'm sick of not seeing Shohei Otani. I'm, I'm sick of not seeing Julio Rodriguez. And I'm sick of seeing the Reds again and the Pirates again. And I know that you have to play your teams in your division, but I just wish that there was more of a chance for us to be exposed to all of the stars in baseball. I'm with you. All right, let's get a couple of texts, Matthew, 65780. Sick of Thursdays. Why can't we just go from hump day to Friday already? I like that idea, but you need to have Friday Friday Eve. That's why. No. You need to have the anticipation. Try this on real quick. Don't dismiss it. Let it marinate. Four-day work week. Yep. Thursday is Friday. I'm Friday is the that. new Saturday. Hump day is Holy Friday God. Eve. There you go. Imagine how great Wednesdays are now. I read an article both. yesterday when I was reading about the fires in Europe that Europe is considering a four-day work week. And I was like, what? Can we get on board with that? Totally. And we've got hot weather. They've got hot weather. Okay, so we don't have 120 like Portugal does, but we still have hot weather. I mean, things are worse here. I know that they're dealing with yeah. with a lot of stuff over there, too. And our thoughts and prayers to the people who are dealing with the heat and the fire. Seriously, that's terrible. But come on. Don't yeah. you think we have Amer- as Americans have it pretty rough right now and that we could all deserve a four-day work week? By the way, bozos that stole the car of the tourists on Washington with the dogs in it. Come on, give the dog back. It happened, uh, like Monday. Tourists sitting on a patio on Washington, watching their car, their car's right next to them. A truck stops in front of their car. They look over after the truck leaves in their car with the two dogs. The car's running with two dogs in it. Uh, And, uh, you know, you probably shouldn't leave your car running in downtown St. Louis. But still, you stole a a car with dogs in it. Don't steal. If you're going to steal cars, don't steal cars with dogs or people in them. Be more creative. Ugh. Not only did you get your car stolen, but you got your dog stolen. Yeah. That's awful. And they got one of them back, and they're not from here. Ugh. Yeah. And that's the postcard of our city. Yeah, it is. Yep. Sick of the check swing and the umps getting it wrong most of the time. If you watch old games, they never even bothered with it. That's right. Well, you know, those guys don't need to watch. Every, it, every time it's, okay, not every time. 99% of the time it's a swing. Just say it's a swing. Yeah. Don't bother with it. And if it's not a swing, no big deal. I didn't know there was a camp of thought about this. Wow. Yeah. All right, fair it's enough. It's a swing. Don't, and, and 
do we really expect first and third base umpires to be watching all the time? Come on. We, they're, they aren't going to watch all the time. Well, they should. It's kind of their job. It is, but they're looking in the stands. They got other things going on. But they're not on. getting paid to look in the stands. They're getting paid to watch the game. Yeah, but still, Watch the line, you know. Point. It, it, I'm just saying. They just don't have much of a... That would be like me just going silent, Randy, for eight minutes and saying, oh, well, what? But, I get paid to talk. See... But it's an advantage for us to not have a long attention span. (laughs) It's not an advantage for them to not have a long attention span. If you have a long attention span in today's world, you are a rarity. You are valuable. It's amazing to me how often, and it really does happen a lot in baseball, how often everybody on the field forgets the count. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. That is Matthew. And coming up, Craig Amsinger, MLB Network on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Michelle, I'm looking at this website called Fashion Beads, listing the most fashionable guys of 2022, most fashionable men. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal, are you kidding me? Harry Styles, Tom Holland, Michael B. Jordan. Are you, are you kidding me that we can have a top five, that we can have a top ten that doesn't include our friend MLB Network's native St. Louis and Greg Amzinger? It's preposterous to me. It's a joke that FashionBeans.com doesn't have Greg Amzinger as the most fashionable man of 2022. Yeah, you mean to tell me because Jake Gyllenhaal wore a scarf once, he's on the list, but our guy can wear shorts and Gucci loafer slides with the aviator (laughs) shades and he's not making this list? It's preposterous. Greg, good morning. Oh my goodness. All I'm going to say is I'm coming. I'm heading in the right direction. (laughs) I might not be on the list right now. But my goodness, did I make a splash? I made a splash. So what were players saying? I got to hear this. Uh, I've got video of Mike Trout being like, you look amazing. I couldn't pull that off. And I go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Our PR girl, Amanda, is recording everything that's going on back behind uh, off the air. Can you say that again slower? And he like that. He points it. I cannot pull this off. You look amazing. Miguel Cabrera walks up on the stage and goes, Wow. Wow. You are the best dress. You are the best dress on the red carpet. I gave him a big sweaty hug. It was amazing. Even Albert Pouls was like laughing, going, Oh my goodness, man, you look great. It was awesome. It was awesome. And you were and anybody any viewer that was like there are so many men obviously that watch our network, like Amstinger's humiliating himself. Amstinger looks terrible. Come on, that's because your girlfriend or your wife is going, He looks great. So you went on social media and you blasted me. Whatever. I don't care. I know I brought it on the red carpet. I represented St. Louis well. And and I I was thinking about the two of you in that studio and how your reaction was going to be. And I knew you'd love it. We did love it, Greg. We blew up the text chain because we were so proud of you and your fashion prowess. But you also got St. Louis in quite a tizzy with a question that you asked Juan Soto. I'm going to play it for those who haven't heard it. This is what Greg Amzinger asked Juan Soto as he was styling on the red carpet. Carpet. Did you have a conversation with Albert Pools about all the stuff going on with you? I mean, I, I talked to him, I talked with everybody, but you know, everything that we talk, we got to keep it private because uh, we talk a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that, you know, yeah. but he, they, a lot of the guys have a similar experience in their career, so it makes sense that you would lean on them. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Greg, take us through that question. <laughs> well, <laughs> as we all know, as we all know. Albert Pujols is someone that they all idolize. 
And I was around during the home run derby. I got a chance to see things backstage that other people couldn't see. And Albert had his arm around Juan Soto in his ear a lot. And there are many reasons why he could be doing that. Obviously, he's one of the greatest hitters of all time. Juan Soto is about to be one of the greatest hitters of all time. But with everything going on with Juan Soto, it makes a lot of sense as to what Albert could be, you know, pitching him on. As we dream in uh, St. Louis as baseball fans, he's got a major uh, decision to make. It's really not his decision. From what I'm hearing, so many different packages will be at the disposal of Mike Rizzo, the GM of the Washington Nationals, that because of goodwill, they'll they'll want him part of the process. If this didn't work out, here are the destinations. Is there a place you would like to go? And if that conversation happens, then moments like that, where he is spending so much time with a guy he looks up to, uh, I think could help sway however important that portion of this upcoming transaction will be. So what I'm saying is if Juan Soto has any say, if he's got 10% sway of where he goes, uh, those conversations with Albert Pujols matter. And uh, I noticed that I, I, I asked him, and he had admitted that he has been talking to him. So I knew St. Louis would be up, excited about that. And, you know, I just I, th- I thought I needed to do it. You did, and we are all very thankful that you did. Um, but, Greg, just to expand on that a little bit, we know that players like Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt, they want to come to St. Louis because they know that the Cardinals are always going to be in the mix and they want a chance to win. But watching Albert Pujols and the adoration and the great respect that all of the All-Stars showed him, and he really stole the show at the All-Star game, just the appreciation that we saw from so many players towards Albert, and he's doing all that while wearing the Cardinal uniform, and he's doing all that after the Cardinals made sure to bring him back. Does that make players even a little bit more likely to want to come to St. Louis? Yeah, it, it goes back to the idea of a couple of weeks ago, Albert Pulse was lifted for a pinch hitter after he had two hits. I went off on that. And the reason I went off on that, it goes against the Cardinal brand. The new analytical, be smarter than everyone, everyone's doing it now, so you're not smarter than everyone. Let's do a matchup. As great as Nolan Gorman is, Nolan Gorman doesn't want to take an at-bat away from Albert Pujols when he's got two hits in the game. He doesn't. So the humanity reigns supreme. Well, the reason I brought that up was Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt paid attention to that. Nolan Arenado, Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt are future Hall of Famers. They're going into the Hall of Fame someday. And they want to be treated uh, as Hall of Famers before they're Hall of Famers. And St. Louis does that. The Cardinals have done that for, for generations. Some would say they didn't do that to Ozzie Smith towards the end of his career. But Ozzie got a chance to play a lot uh, at at the age of 41, and I think they did. So it is a place where if you are a special player, you get treated that way every day. Let me tell you, Albert was hitting under uh, 200, um, a good chunk into this regular season. Most organizations DFA a guy that's 41, 42, and he's having a hard time making contact. So the, most teams do that. This organization is a crown jewel because of the way they treat their greatest players. And, you know, winning in that bat and making sure you've got the right analytical option at the plate isn't always the best answer. It is still an entertainment product. And by bringing Albert Pools back to St. Louis, which I was clamoring for 
three to two years ago. Mm-hmm. You see why that was a good idea. You see why it was a good idea. It's not just great for Albert Pools. It's great for the St. Louis Cardinals organization that they take care of players unlike any other. Greg Amzinger, MLB Network, hosted the MLB Draft on Sunday night. And by the way, great work, your entire staff. I loved watching it. You know more about Cooper Zerpe, the Cardinals' first-rounder, than any of us do. So give us a, a scouting report on him. So funny. So John Savage, who uh, is the head baseball coach at UCLA, was asked to break down a couple of the guys that he's managed against in the Pac-12. So Cooper Jerpy, we were expecting to go in the first round. So he did a breakdown tape. So John is new to television. We rehearsed his breakdown tapes in the commercial break or before the show started. And I'm watching it, and I see him. everyone compares Cooper Jerpy to Chris Sale, but I never look at him that way. His stuff just isn't that overpowering. And then you see the difference in the arm slot in his breakdown tape. And then later he goes, he's actually a better comp to a pitcher most people won't know or remember, John Tudor of the St. Louis Cardinals. This is before the draft started. So it gets my attention. I'm like, oh, (laughs) this guy's like John Tudor. That's cool. See, then he's showing them side by side. He goes, think of him as a taller John Tudor. I'm like, wow. So I just like planted that in my back of my mind. Cardinals draft him. I go to John Savage. All right, John, who does this guy remind you of? And he does this breakdown tape. And at the end of it, I'm like, let me tell you something, John. People in St. Louis are so fired up right now that they just drafted a taller version of John Tudor (laughs) because people in St. Louis love themselves from John Tudor. I I think it's a great comp. Uh, John Tudor, younger through harder. Towards the end, he can manipulate the baseball and get anybody out. Uh, This kid's got staying power. His K per nine was like a closer in college at 14. Uh, He's got deception. This draft was the most unique class of any team to me. A year ago, the Angels selected all pitchers. Well, this year, St. Louis Cardinals, 19 of their 20, the first 19 players they took were college players. That was really unique. Uh, This is a new draft, only 20 rounds, so you really can't miss on anybody anymore. And the college player is going to get a shot over a high school player more and more and more. So I love the Cooper Jerpy pick. I think this guy is quick to the big leagues. We did a segment, you know, give me three guys that you think could get to the big leagues in less than a year. And every one of our guys said Cooper Jerpy was in their three. So this is a guy that can help the Cardinals pretty quickly and he can strike some people out, man. So it was a great draft pick. And Greg, by the way, I think everybody that was watching in St. Louis appreciated the St. Louis representation on the broadcast and specifically up on the desk. Tony Vitello is a star. He sure is. Oh, my goodness. So I meet him. First off, he looks like a male model. And uh, I'm like, hey, man, nice to meet you. You I I, I watch a lot of college baseball. And I told him, I got, I got to be honest with you, I hated the University of Tennessee. Like, I hate the way you guys play. You, they, they, they throw bats, throw helmets. They, they, they cuss at the other team. They're like, come fight me. And, and he sits there stoically and just lets it happen. It's like he's a bad babysitter, you know. <laughs> That's what I told him. And, and, he, and he loved it. And he's like, you know, it's literally what I want them to do. I want them to, to get under the skin of every team that we play. And I, he goes, I don't care about all the, the etiquette of baseball, unwritten rules. I could care less. And, and I'm like, where are you from? I, I seriously didn't even know. I showed up draft day. He said, well, I grew up in St. Louis. I go, whoa, whoa, what, what part of St. Louis? He's like, uh, uh, I went to DeSmet. My dad's a legendary coach. I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah. Go, your dad? 
So we start like St. Louis broing it up, you know, <laughs> we're like talking about everyone we know and all this stuff. So long story short, and, and I sent Randy a video because Tony, I told Tony, I knew Randy and he like lost his mind. Of course, with this conversation happened at the bar after the draft. So there was a post draft <laughs> party. There's a post draft party. And uh, so it, obviously I, I got to go to it. But I have two interns. I have two interns that work for me. I, I give two young people a chance to work on the draft with me, and they do a ton of research for me. It's great. My two interns didn't have the credential to get in because it's like a VIP draft party. So, you know, bummer. They can't go. And if they can't go, I can't go. So if I couldn't go, Tony wasn't going to go. So we went to the yard house. And like We did walking distance. We, we didn't go to this VIP draft party. So it was me, Tony Vitello, and my two interns at the bar having the greatest time with baseball fans. Tony loved every minute of it. And that's where we recorded the video where Tony's like, Randy Carricker, you are a legend. I, I grew up listening to you. But Tony Vitello, I, I, I want to give him a lifetime contract. He will be on the draft every year. If you didn't see him on our set, he was amazing. First time he's ever been on television, wow. like live. And he was off the charts, represented Tennessee well and St. Louis well. He's an awesome guy. Yeah, and he's my new favorite baseball coach, as you might guess. <laughs> hey, one, one quick thing, Greg. Here we are. The Cardinals get back in action on uh, on Friday. They're in, they're in Cincinnati. Statistically, they have the easiest schedule remaining in all of Major League Baseball. Do the Cardinals win the National League Central? The only way they do not win the National League Central is if the Milwaukee Brewers make a trade and they get Nelson Cruz and Josh Bell. And they, they have to go get two guys. The Milwaukee Brewers have to add two bats. If the Brewers do that with their starting pitching, it's going to get healthier in the second half. Corbin Burns is already looking like he did last year. The back end of their bullpen is what it is. We don't have to sell that. They, if they do not, they sit on their hands, the Cardinals win the division. But the Brewers still drive this because their pitching is so extreme. So if they add two signature bats, the Cardinals will have a hard time winning. I don't think they'll do that. Is that not so sad like it's so obvious the Brewers lineup needs more stability offensively when your highest paid player is essentially a better version of Jason Hayward right now and Christian Yelich you need to go add two more but more than likely they'll sit on their hands and the Cardinals will win the NL Central all right love to hear it Greg we always love having you on great stuff today as always thank you very much we will communicate soon and have yourself a great weekend and get yourself some golf in I will, and trust me, uh, because of the right carpet, I will be wearing shorts all day today. <laughs> That's what all I want to hear. Day. Oh, your legs are all great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, I'm recording now. Can you say that again, Randy Carragher? Greg Amsinger, your legs are great. <laughs> <laughs> That's my new ringtone. That's my new ringtone. All right. We'll see you later, brother. Take care. Right, see you, buddy. Greg Amsinger, MLB Network on 101 ESPN. He really did make a statement on that red carpet. Yeah, he, spectacular. I'll uh, I'll tweet the picture. I'll tweet the picture uh, of him on the red carpet during this break. Please do. At Randy uh, Carriker. You betcha. And, of course, you can always follow Michelle on the socials, Instagram, and uh, the Twitter as well, at M. Smallman. Next up, get your text in for Take It or Leave It on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Take it 
or leave it. Give us your feedback now by texting 65780. It's Take It or Leave It with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Powered by Gloria Lou Realty. Visit GloriaHasTheBuyers.com and start packing. It's Take It or Leave It on 101 ESPN. We'll keep this kind of short because Jeremy Rutherford is coming up next here on the program. Michelle, Randy, and Matthew with you. Uh, Michelle, Sean Payton did an interview with USA Today and was asked if he would get back into coaching. And he said, ultimately, do I think I'll get back in? Sure. Of course, NFL training camps opening up right now as we speak. The first one opened fully yesterday. That was the... uh, the uh, Vegas Raiders who got going. Uh, so take it or leave it. Next year at this time, Sean Payton is preparing the Dallas Cowboys for training camp. Ooh, that's a really good one. And I will take it. Because Jerry is getting more and more desperate every year mm-hmm. and certainly would love another championship. And I could see Mike McCarthy being the victim of the lack of success from the Cowboys. I don't know that it really matters what the Cowboys do short of winning the Super Bowl. I think Peyton will be the guy. There we go. I was like, where'd the bet go? There, there it is. Um, so kind of like our segment to kick off the show about the Cardinals. If the Cowboys don't win the Super Bowl, Mike McCarthy will pay the price. Take it. Yes. Okay. Um, So, Randy, it's SEC Media Days and NIL and the transfer portal has changed the landscape of college athletics dramatically. We have realignment that continues to happen. Things are just a completely different world than when Nick Saban first became a college football coach. Georgia is defending their title. There's talent that's always on the move. I was thinking about this this morning. Take it or leave it, Nick Saban never wins another national championship. We'll leave that. I think he's going to win the one this year. He's got the quarterback. He's got some pretty good defenders coming. He's always got good defenders coming back, doesn't he? I'm, I'm going to say that they win this year. I'm going to take that. He's. Oh, I think he's going to be in the mix until he retires. But I, I wonder if it's going to be as easy for him to win every year or every other year. No, because of two factors. Actually, three factors. Number one, the fact that Kirby Smart has things going at Georgia now. Mm-hmm. They're going to be really good again this year, even though they lost their defense. Number two, Brian Kelly. I know a lot of people yep. scoffed at Brian Kelly going to LSU. That'll make the division a lot tougher. They're getting a lot of talent at LSU. They sure are. And then, in terms of winning a championship, Lincoln Riley at USC is the game changer as far as I'm concerned. And I know people don't want to fully think that Texas is back, but the fact that Arch Manning is going there and gave them a vote of confidence. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the football's first family and the Mannings are saying, we think Texas is, is the place to be for the future. I wouldn't be surprised if they get it going, too. No, the competition is tougher than it's ever been. And then, of course, Mizzou. Exactly. Yeah, go Eli. A couple of texts, 65780. Matthew, what do you got for us? Take it or leave it. The inclusion of Patrick Corbin makes a Soto acquisition more possible than it were without him. Oh, I would absolutely take that if the Cardinals would pay Corbin's salary. They need pitching, so of course that makes it more likely. That would be kind of like them, I would hope, fingers crossed, if they get him. Hopefully he turns into John Lester. Of last year? Yeah, Yeah, get a guy from Washington who's really failing there and have Adam Wainwright say, you're really, really good. 
And then all of a sudden he turns good again. Or have Mike Maddox work with him. That'd be good too. Before he becomes the fall guy. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> take it or leave it. Sean Payton should coach the Battlehawks. Oh, definitely oh, take, take that. Yeah, 100%, take. 100% take. Yeah. So are you guys all in on the fact that uh, St. Louis is going to have a franchise when the XFL announces on Sunday? They better have a franchise when the XFL so. announces. I, yeah. I, like a, I got like 14% doubt. It, there's like, like just because. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help it. It was one percent, you know, for a long time there. But now, it's it, it just it's yeah, it's at like 05 percent over the last like month. It's it's getting annoying. Uh, take it or leave it. Soto and Kachuk will do a joint introductory press conference. I'm gonna leave that. I think that both teams will take it upon themselves to have press conferences at different times when they make both the trades. Yeah, okay. future blue Matthew Kachuk, future blue or future Cardinal Juan Soto. Just let this sink in for a second. What if in the same span of two weeks? The Blues acquired Matthew Kachuk. The Cardinals got Soto and Corbin, and we got the Battlehawks back. It would be crazy. It would be unbelievable. That would be bananas. It would be the wildest transaction period in the history of St. Louis sports. I'd be concerned for the local watering holes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Thank God we're, thank goodness that we are the beer capital of America because we're going to need some more kegs. Hell, with the Kachuk family here, I'm just going to, if the Blues get Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to need some more kegs, people. Thank you, Matthew. I need to open like a satellite location of OBs. Well, the the hive over here. That's true. I forgot. (laughs) You've already got it. Uh, That's Matthew. You, Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, Jeremy Rutherford talking blues on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Our Blues Insider from The Athletic is Jeremy Rutherford. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Just calling in here from uh, Fenton Park, watching my daughter go through uh, softball lessons. And uh, the coach said, let's do it early today before it gets too hot. I like that idea. That's good. Hey, uh, (laughs) I'm sure, JR, like when you will tweet one fact, there are people on Twitter that will come back and say, like, or tweet to you, announce the Blues getting Matthew Kachuk. You see those, right? You see those interactions yeah. again. So, uh, will you, I'm going to say it right now. Announce the Blues are getting Matthew Kachuk. <laughs> you know, there's been times where you, you just wonder, like, obviously I'd never do that, but you would just wonder, <laughs> what if I do tweet that? What if, what if I have a breaking Blues have acquired? Like, this uh, city, I think, would go in, insane. That would be something. And, hey, listen, after yesterday, that actually may be a tweet that we have here in the future. Oh, that would be nice. Before we get to that, back in 1983 at the winter meetings in, I don't remember where they were, but the Cardinals have won the World Series. The Philadelphia Phillies call a midnight press conference and their general manager says, we got Suter. So that's what he's telling to all the writers. Come to this press conference, we got Suter. And it wound up being like a guy named Bob Suter that they got from the Expos for a minor leaguer. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's... um. That's um, I do remember a couple of years ago while we're on this is uh, when the blues were for sale, I got some information that they were going to be bought by Applebee's. And I said, Applebee's like the restaurant. And, and the person, the source told me, I thought they said, yeah. So I went with it and uh, we had it in the, the paper the next day and then come to find out it's a guy named Steve Appleby. And so, uh, oh my gosh, a little, a little bit off with that it one. Happens, it happens. Uh, yeah, but you weren't totally wrong, Jer. Okay, let's go back to the, the tweet being a possibility that the Blues acquired Matthew Kachuk. Clearly, the Flames want to get a lot for him because he is a star player. So, what would it take for the Blues to make this deal? 
Well, it's going to take a lot for sure, and we, we all know that. But I think um, you, you look at this, and there's so much interest in Matthew Kachuk around the league. Like, if everybody had a shot at him, I mean, you'd have to say that there's 20-plus teams that would try to figure something out, Michelle. But I, I think it's a situation where Matthew's given the Flames the list of teams that he would uh, sign a long-term extension with, and that list is believed to be about four or five teams. Now, I do want to provide some context you know, from the report yesterday. The list of teams that we mentioned yesterday were just teams that we believe Matthew has had interest in at one time. Is that the exact list that he handed the Calgary Flames? No. I believe that there are a couple teams on there that probably aren't on the list that he gave to the Flames. But So it's a situation where you have this uh, short list of teams, and now the Flames work with those teams and through the agent and try to find the deal. So the Blues are one of them. So I, I think that what would it take? I think, first of all, you got to keep in mind that you have to move a lot of salary cap. If you're going to fit that $9 million in, you have to have $9 million going out. It's a dollar-for-dollar dollar situation. But no doubt the Flames that have interest in guys uh, like Jordan Cairo, probably even the prospects, neighbors, Bull Duke, but it's going to take a lot more salary than that. And J.R., Obviously, it's going to take Vladimir Tarasenko, right? That's going to have to be part of the deal. And I believe it was on one of the athletic pieces last night that suggested that the Flames would be willing to take on Vladdy's $7.5 million salary for the year. The big question I would have would be, would Vladdy be willing to take on the Flames? So I I want to be as forthright with this answer as I can because it's a good question. I think it's a situation where, you know, a year ago, I was told that Vladimir Tarasenko would take a trade anywhere. And I said, because we were talking Kachuk at the time, Calgary, and I was told he would take a trade to go anywhere. Has that changed in the last 12 months? It could have. Vladimir's uh, camp you know, has been uh, pretty silent throughout the past couple months. I think it's a situation where they don't want to interfere with anything in terms of a trade being made. I still believe that he would like to be traded. I still believe there's a good chance he could be traded. Would he go to the Calgary Flames? I just don't know. A team without Johnny Gaudreau and obviously Matthew Kachuk wouldn't be on that team either. You know, if he were to go to Calgary and not have a great season and then go into unrestricted free agency, you know, how would that work out for him? I don't know that that's the best option for him. If I had to guess, I would say that he would not go to the Calgary Flames. You know, there's so many different ways this could go. It could be a three-team trade where Tarasenko goes somewhere else, Kachuk goes here, and you know, Calgary gets uh, assets and players from the Blues. So, so we'll see. But my answer would be I would think that he would not do that after such a great season heading into unrestricted free agency next year. JR, obviously we know that Matthew Kachuk has roots here in St. Louis, and if he were to come here, it's likely that he would stay here long term. Is there any other team on that list that you think could have the same outcome for Matthew Kachuk where he might like it there and want to stay there long term? Yeah, and so we go back to that uh, list again. I want to stress that that's not the one that he he handed uh, Calgary, but uh, there are teams on there, I believe, um, like a Dallas, uh, I think Nashville's been mentioned. You know, I know Vegas, but gosh, they have you know so many cap issues already themselves. Uh, you know, a team I've heard some of is uh, Florida in the past. You know, could they work out something with Kachuk? You know, the one thing I've heard about Matthew is that he would like to be the guy. And obviously, when you're a ten million dollar guy and you second team All Star last year, 104 points. You know, you're gonna be the guy. That's who you are. But I think that's what he's looking to be in an American city, so that's why he wants to move. So I I think that any of those teams that I mentioned uh, would probably be places that he would be interested in playing. you got some other ones like New York and New Jersey, things like that, but can New York do it with the cap? 
you know, would he want to go to New Jersey? The one thing maybe you keep an eye out is New Jersey. Uh, Tom Fitzgerald is, is a relative of the Kachucks. He's the GM there. And also there's some other connections with the Devils. JR, is there any prospect that you think is off limits in these conversations with Calgary? You know, I, I think when you're talking about Matthew Kachuk, it's it's too hard to put a prospect off limits. You know, I've thought about that question. You know, would they hesitate to give up a stick neighbors? Uh, I know they like him. I don't think they would hesitate. Zach Bolduke, you know, that they're really high on him. This is a guy with a, a ton of skill. You talk about the first-round pick they just made in Montreal, Jimmy Snuggerud. Uh, you know, great player, can't be off limits. I don't know that the Blues have a player that could be off limits. And, and the thing is, it's going to take more than that, I believe, if you want to make this deal happen, Michelle. I really do think it's going to take one of those prospects that we just mentioned. I think it could take a first-round pick. I think it could take a Jordan Cairo. And as mentioned before, you're going to have to uh, move some salary, whether it be a Krug or a Tarasenko or or somebody like that. So I I don't think that the Blues can not pull the trigger on this trade because there's a prospect that they want to cling to. JR, one last thing from me and the Athletics reporting yesterday that – a trade is likely to happen before his arbitration date, which would be scheduled between July 27th and August 11th. That's pretty quick. And somebody, it, it seems like any of those teams outside of Dallas is going to have to clear a lot of cap space. And I don't know that Dallas has the assets when you talk about how much Calgary wants back in return to go out and get a guy like Matthew Kachuk. It seems to me like it's going to take a little bit of time for this to come together. Now, if you and I were doing the negotiations, if you were representing the Flames, if you were Brad Traveling and I'm uh, Doug Armstrong, we could get it done in five minutes. But for whatever reason, <laughs> hockey teams hockey teams seem to take more time. Yeah, no, from a you know moving cap uh, for these teams, it is going to take some time. You know, the one thing that I think is kind of funny is every year about this time, I get an email that says when the arbitration cases are going to be heard. And so this email, you guys, it, it's got all the, the, the players who have cases upcoming, and it'll say Matthew Kachuk, and it'll say August 3rd. And this is like a throwaway email. Nobody usually cares about it because <laughs> what it, you know, it, it's just arbitration hearings. But this is really important because you mentioned the window. So we're going to get an email in a day or two that's going to say, here's the players and here's the date of their hearing. And Kachuk, as you mentioned, could be any time July 27th, through August 11th. It could be the 11th. You don't know. That's going to be a big deal in this case because it's going to give them more time to make this trade. From everything I've heard talking to sources, they expect the trade to be done before his arbitration hearing. So many things happen once uh, you know you have that hearing. Uh, there's a reward made, the contract set in stone. It has to be done before that hearing. But right now, as of uh, our conversation, we just don't know the date of that hearing yet. JR, you enjoy that practice, and we always appreciate your time and your hard work. And we advise everybody to follow you on Twitter. And if they haven't subscribed, for whatever reason, I don't know why anybody wouldn't have subscribed to The Athletic by now, but you should because you're going to be all over the Matthew Kachuk story like you have been. Appreciate the support, guys. Hey, good to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. That's our friend Jeremy Rutherford from The Athletic, our Blues Insider on 101 ESPN. Coming up, we're going to talk to John Hackworth. He is the Director of Coaching for St. Louis City SC, and he's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Smallman on 101 ESPN, and there's so many things going on with St. Louis City SC, and we welcome to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, John Hackworth. He is the City SC MLS Next Pro Head Coach and the Director of Coaching for St. Louis City SC. John, thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. I know that these are busy times for City. How are you doing? 
I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I want to start with this because uh, City 2 plays tomorrow, and they've been playing for a while. How is City 2 ascending? How are they doing? I think we're doing all right. Uh, you know, we're, we're close to being uh, the, the best team in the league. Right now we're sitting in second place, but um, we have a few games in hand. Uh, we had a bye weekend last weekend, so uh, we were in first before that. So I'd say we're doing pretty good. And that's even more impressive, John, when you think about the other teams in the league you're competing against. They've already had a roster that's been constructed, and a city has to put this team together in less than a year. So how has that been, not only uh, competing against teams that are more established, but trying to find the chemistry of your team as you're trying to go out there and win? Yeah, and it's been really uh, good so far. We we have a young group of players. You know, We brought in... Um, brand new, uh, but at the same time, you know, we're trying to build towards uh, becoming an MLS team next year. And so it's given our staff and the players, you know, a head start as we move from the next pro league into the MLS next year. And you're the director of coaching, and Lutz has told us that he wants to have a style of play for City. Can you explain to us how your job works in that regard in trying to implement a style of play for City? Yeah, it's really simple. Luce tells me I have to do this, and then <laughs> I have to make sure that all our other coaches do exactly what Luce says. Uh, but to to be more specific about it, we're very intentional about the way we want to play, our style. You know, we have principles that we stick to, and we are very bullish in 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 our training sessions and in our game model of those exact things. And that's just again. For us to be doing this a year ahead of going into the MLS, for our staff, for the players that we've already signed, um, we're getting a lot of practice um, at exactly how we want to do it going forward. John, can you share some of those principles with us? Sure. Well, we're, we're, a, we're a team that wants to, to basically be aggressive uh, from start to finish. We want to press our opponents. We want to take away their time and space. Uh, we want to counter-press. Uh, that means when we lose the ball, we will look to get it back as quickly as possible. We want to dictate field positions, so we like to be in the opponent's half of the field um, at all times. And we're, when I say aggressive, you know, our defensive line is extremely high. Uh, and then we have little principles about how we do that, and there's nuances uh, to everything that we are. We, we concentrate on where the ball is, and we hunt like a pack of wolves to go get it. And, John, these are philosophies that are all throughout the organization. So when fans show up to watch the very first game with STL City SC next spring, can they anticipate that they're going to watch this style of soccer with that team as well? Absolutely. And as I said, when before I ever got here, Lutz established that this was going to be our style. And every person that he has brought in from the, the technical standpoint – Bradley Carnell, you know, our first team head coach, um, every person that he's brought in has been brought in with that very specific idea in mind. John Hackworth is the St. Louis City SC MLS Next Pro head coach and the director of coaching for St. Louis City SC. And City assigned so many players already from overseas. About how many players that will take the pitch next March are already here? Well, we have, you know, we right now we have Roman Berkey, um, our goalkeeper that we brought from uh, Borussia Dortmund in the Bundesliga, and and he actually 
is not only here, but he's been training with us for several weeks now. Um, and we expect him to potentially play tomorrow uh, against North Texas. Oh, so great. this is just one example of us trying to be, you know, on the front foot. We're trying to bring these guys in early. We're trying to get them acclimated to um, how we want to do things. But more specifically, you know, let them integrate into our community. Let them learn about St. Louis, um, the soccer history here. It's the best you know, and richest uh, soccer history in our country. And that's really important for our players to understand that. John, you have a great resume. You have experience at the national team level. And of course, at the MLS level, you were Philadelphia Union's head coach. What was it about what City SC is doing and about what's happening here in St. Louis that made you want to take this job? Well, I think the ownership group set the the table for, uh, you know, the rest of the league when they said that they were going to build a stadium downtown. And not only that, they're going to put the training facility right next to it. Uh, you know, that's unique. There's not an MLS team that can say that anywhere. Um, and then I really love the idea of it being a community club and myself having so much respect for the history here in St. Louis, knowing how many, you know, national team players and teams, you know, from so long ago uh, represented, you know, I'm a soccer junkie. So for me, to come to a place where I could walk into a coffee shop and talk soccer with, you know, somebody just standing around it, it, that to me was a huge attraction, but it's really what this club and, and the ownership group and Lutz has, has set out, you know, as, as our parameters for what we want to be and how we want to do it. And how about the, you mentioned all the national team players that have come from St. Louis. What about the, the, the quantity? Are there a lot of good soccer players that are going to be MLS players that are playing in St. Louis right now? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have eight teenagers that are playing on our City 2 team right now, you know. So we have a 15-year-old on our team, uh, you know, multiple 16-year-olds. You know, we have players that are, are, are going to leave us and go to college and play at places like SLU. And, and so there's a lot of history here. Um, and there is so much depth in terms of the youth soccer here in this community um, that it's it makes – my job fun because I have a a lot of great uh, young players to choose from. John, I want to go back to what you said about being able to go into a coffee shop and talk soccer with people in St. Louis. You you knew the passion for soccer here. You knew the rich history, but have you even been surprised by the response that City SC has gotten so far with the ticket deposits? Anywhere you go, you see the merch and the bumper stickers and the flags and the scarves. That has to be invigorating for you to know that you're building something that is going to be so widely embraced in our city. It it does, absolutely. I mean, I'm genuine in saying that I'm excited because it is really, it, it's so cool to see that it's not just a small portion of people, you know, um, and anywhere you go in this city, you, you see those things. And when you, you see that, and now you look, we're playing at Ralph Corte stadium at SIU Edwardsville tomorrow. And the noise of our fans, it's amazing. It's hard to coach sometimes because they're so loud. Like that's incredible at this point in our young you know, uh, you know, we're trying to build something special here, and it's already happening with our fan base. Coach, uh, how do you handle tomorrow at Ralph Cordy Stadium when it's 100 degrees? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, we, we just have to prepare our, our players. You know, one of our principles is that we want to be a well-prepared team in all ways. So that's how we train and how we recover and, and how we prepare for games. So, uh, again, you know, we've – we're at the top of the table in the league for a reason. We've done a really good job of that so far. You know, um, our, the head of our 
performance uh, department is exceptional at making sure that we, you know, we train the right way, that we recover the right way, and that we're prepared to go out and play an opponent in, in the rigors of the summer heat. Coach, good luck tomorrow, and thanks so much for the time. We do appreciate it. We will talk to you soon and keep things going, keep things climbing up that mountain with St. Louis City SC. We appreciate it. That's the plan. Thanks for having me. Take care. That is John Hackworth. He is the City SC MLS Next Pro Head Coach, and as he mentioned, City 2 in action tomorrow against North Texas in Edwardsville at Ralph Cordy Stadium, and he's also, also the Director of Coaching. And I loved the idea, Michelle, that they're going to have a style of play that's mm-hmm. implemented from the academy teams up to City 2 and all the way up to the, the major team when they get going next March. But if you are a player for St. Louis City SC at any level, you're going to know exactly how to play when you get to the next team. Yeah, it will make that transition seamless and when you get promoted. But it's also really cool for fans, Randy, because they can go out to Edwardsville tomorrow night and watch City 2 play, and they're already getting a sense of what the flavor of the mm-hmm. team is going to be like. Not only are you getting familiar with the players and just the identity of the team but you know that when it starts in the springtime this is what you can expect if you can follow through with the the first team uh come 2023 with that style hit the ground running aggressive high defensive line counter pressing pressing those kind of things that's going to be incredible there's no more fun style of soccer than the one where it's when's the best time to get the ball back right after you lose it it's the way that kind of style is the most attractive way to watch soccer it's the only way I really ever got into soccer over the last like 10 years is those style of teams I'm so happy that's the style they're bringing it's going to make it easier for a casual fan to get involved in those games every week when it's that kind of aggressive style I'm so happy for that and listening to him it made me think of Craig Bruby Ball possession in the offensive zone, right? Oh, yeah. Maintain possession in the offensive zone. Uh, Attack. Yep. And so we'll have two teams that do that, hopefully, in town. Uh, By the way, St. Louis City SC2, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock in Edwardsville, and the game can be seen on MLSNextPro.com at 7 o'clock. The fight is next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Welcome to the fight on Character and Smallman. In the red corner, average Joe Listener. And in the blue corner, the undisputed king of Morning Drive. Please welcome Randy Character. For the fight on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Nick is going to be Randy's challenger this morning, or as Randy referred to him when he was leaving the studio, today's victim. Nick, what do you think about that? Well, uh, we'll see. I beat him once before. Let's see if I can do it again. Oh, nice. I was like, Randy, that's awfully confident. And he was like, mm. so he, he's feeling good today, Nick. I just got to warn you. We'll see. All right, well, good luck to you. Question number one. HBD to the Mad Hungarian, Al Roboski. Despite never being named an all-star, Hungo finished top five in the National League Cy Young multiple times. What year did he finish in the top three? Was that 1973, 1974, or 1975? 1975. Only two tight ends in the Super Bowl era have led the NFL in receptions for multiple years. Kellen Winslow did it from 80 to 81. He was the first. Who is the other? Was it Shannon Sharp, Todd Christensen, or Tony Gonzalez? Tony Gonzalez. 
Nick, what is the Cardinals' team record for hits in a single game? 20, 25, or 30? Hmm. 25. Who was the first draft pick in Houston Texans history? Was that Andre Johnson, Tony Baselli, or David Carr? David Carr. The score has been recorded. By the way, Nick, if you do lose, do not feel bad. You would just be the 15th straight victim for Randy Carricker. Is that? Are you trying to tell me something here, Rafael? I'm not. I mean, I'm not. I'm not insinuating anything. You did fine. Uh, He's just softening the. the I'm just blow. trying to soften the ball. I'm letting you know that. Hey, listen. In the grand scheme of St. Louis, it's it's not so bad to listen to Randy Carricker. 14 people have done it just this month in a row. You're one of many, Nick, is what he's trying exactly. to say. Yeah, essentially, yes. I got you. I got uh, you. Randy, what is this, Matt? You said 15. This would be this 15? This would be 15 in a row. Randy, you are almost to the Cardinals' historic 17-game win streak. How about that? You're, today would be 15 in a row. Yep. I'm, I'm like Lester and Hap, man. Here we go. Yeah. And I won't be around next year, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You're like Tyler O'Neill, who's really oh, okay. hot in the streak. But you may be injured, but you'll be around. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. All okay. right. Good. Randy, say what's up to Nick. Nick, good morning. How you doing? I'm great, Randy. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. We do appreciate it. Absolutely. Are you ready? Ready. This says HDB, but I think it's HBD. Yeah. HBD. HBD happy, happy day birthday to the mad Hungarian, <laughs> Al Roboski. Yeah, it still works. Despite never being named an all-star, Hungo finished top five in the National League Cy Young multiple times. What year did he finish in the top three? I think he had 22 saves in 1975, which was the year we had Hoi Halov Haraboski Day. <laughs> Walter Alston, the manager of the oh, Dodgers, didn't oh, pick Al for the all-star team. And the Dodgers were in town right before the all-star break. So Marty Hendon put together a promotion where people brought in banners that said HWE, H, we, love Horoboski Day. So there were tons of banners for Walter Alston to see. Brilliant. It was great. Oh, we love Halov Horoboski Day. That's amazing. The Mad Hungarian. He was great. Randy, only two tight ends in the Super Bowl era have led the NFL in receptions multiple times. Kellen Winslow did it in 80 and 81. He was the first one to do it. Who is the other? In receptions for a season, multiple, so, multiple years to lead the NFL in multiple the to lead the NFL in receptions in multiple seasons. Only two tight ends have done it. Kellen Winslow was the first. Who is the other? Mm. Okay, I've, I've got a coin flip here between um, Shannon Sharp and Tony Gonzalez. I think I'm going to go Shannon Sharp. Randy, what is the Cardinals' team record for hits in a single game? So a few years ago, they had a game where they had like 25. And I I remember looking this up. I think it's 30. I think they hit way back in the day. wasn't recent. I think they had a game where they had 30. All right. Who was the first draft pick in Houston's Texans history? This is a guy that uh, Mike Martz, L-O-V-E-D, really? loved David Carr. Loved really? him coming out of Fresno what? State. Yeah, uh, he, he was trying to trade up, even with Kurt here, play him well. He was trying to trade up to get him as a future quarterback for the Rams. Uh, obviously devastated by poor offensive line play and mm-hmm. just got hit so many times. He would have been a really good quarterback if he would have gone to the right team. But the Texans weren't the right team for David Carr. So many guys you could say that about. Yeah, exactly. Would have been a really good quarterback had he gone to the right team. (laughs) 
Who are you thinking of, Michelle? Number eight, Sam Bradford. That's a pretty good one. That's what I was thinking, too. I just wonder, though, about his durability wherever he went. Yeah, was it the right team or just the team that understood what a high ankle sprain was the best? Or a team that might have protected him. That, too. Right, that would have helped. That would have helped. Although the injuries were kind of weird. Oh, my gosh, he was falling out of bounds. Yeah, right. So, yeah, you do have to wonder about his durability. But if he's, for example, if he goes to Tampa, or not Tampa, if if he goes to New England and... He's put in that situation where Brady like never got hit. Mm-hmm. It would have been different. I just remember that call from Demarco. Oh no! Yeah, oh right. no! <laughs> right. You're like, oh man, again. Anyway, was Nick able to beat Randy, or did Randy make Nick, as he said before he left the studio, <laughs> his latest victim? Come on, no, that was studio. <laughs> hey, if you're calling your shot, I'm gonna call you out on it. Was Randy right? Or did Nick stop the streak in his tracks? Rocky, will ring the bell. The winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. Just win, baby. I'm sorry, Nick. I was hoping that you would stop him. Shannon Sharp, huh? It was not Shannon Sharp. Let's run through our answers because okay. it was not Shannon Sharp. So it is our Roboski's birthday. We love Roboski. He finished in the top three in the National League Cy Young vote in 1975. He went 13 and three with 22 saves and 65 appearances. Shout out to Al. Until Bruce Hooter got here, that was the all-time Cardinal record, only 22. Only two tight ends in the Super Bowl era have led the NFL in receptions for multiple years. Kellen Winslow, Kellen Winslow in 80-81 was the first. The other was Todd Christensen Wow. in 83 and 86. Mm, good one. And Gonzalez only did it once. Shannon Sharp never actually led the league in receptions. Wow. The Cardinals team record for hits in a single game is, in fact, 30, and it happened on September 1st, 1895. It was back in the day. (laughs) Back in my day. (laughs) The Cardinals were having 30 hits in a single game, Jeff Albert. (laughs) The first draft pick in Houston Texans history was, in fact, David Carr. That was back in 2002, first overall. Fun fight today. Not for you, Nick. I'm sorry. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. Have a great Friday Eve. All right, guys. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us on 101 ESPN. That's the fight. Coming up, we hope you saw episode one of The Captain, the ESPN documentary about Derek Jeter. And episode two is coming up tonight. We're going to talk to the director of that great documentary, Randy Wilkins, next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carricker, 101 ESPN in St. Louis. And tonight, the second installment of The Captain, the ESPN, the great ESPN documentary about Derek Jeter. And joining us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line is Randy Wilkins. He is the director of The Captain. Great to have you with us, sir. Thanks for your time. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? Everything's good. Hey, I wanted to start with this. Well, let me go back to this. Spike Lee recommended you for this job. Uh, I, I, what did you think when they came to you and said, hey, Randy, we'd like you to direct this documentary about Derek Jeter? Oh, I couldn't believe it. I almost dropped my phone when Spike uh, called me about it. Um, yeah, it was a dream come true. I've known Spike for pretty much my entire adult life. He started off as my professor at NYU grad film. 
And uh, we've had a longstanding professional and personal relationship. And Spike called me in June of 2020 uh, when the pandemic was first raging. And I don't know, it just, it was incredible. It's, it's a dream come true. I'm from New York. I'm from the Bronx. Uh, huge Yankees fan. Derek Jeter was my guy. So it was just incredible to hear it and incredible to be able to tell this story. So, Randy, did that work for you in directing this, or was it difficult to compartmentalize the image that you had of Derek Jeter and just focus on extracting what you wanted to find out about him? Oh, no. My my job first is to be a filmmaker and storyteller. So wherever my fandom lies, I have to put that to the side. I think the only way that my fandom influenced things was just in the research and really understanding uh, the Yankees tenure that Derek had, um, having some understanding of Derek's relationship with the city and um, how he's revered here. So I think in terms of research and building out a story, it helped me. But in terms of the emotional storytelling, uh, being as balanced as possible and getting Derek to be open and candid, my fandom goes to the side. I have a job to do as a filmmaker and a storyteller, and I take that very seriously. Was it difficult to get him to be open and candid? Because this is someone who is described in the trailer as a star that hid in plain sight. Derek Jeter did a better job than almost any modern day athlete of protecting his image and really getting the message that he wanted out through the media. So was it hard to get to the truth? No, uh, we had a lot of conversations before we filmed one frame uh, of his interview. So this was something that he wanted to do. He fully understood that in order for this film to work and be emotionally engaging and to feel like something new, he had to be open and candid. Um, I think that even in our filmmaking approach, we simplify things so we can focus really on Derek opening up. So he was prepared for it. He knew that we were going to ask questions about things he hadn't really talked about publicly before he was comfortable with it. And I think it shows in the film. Randy Wilkins is the director of The Captain, and the second installment is tonight on ESPN at 8 o'clock St. Louis time. Randy, in watching the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, and watching the Tom Brady documentary, now watching this one, isn't it remarkable how these athletes that are at the very top of the game have that common denominator of just unquenchable competitiveness and a chip on their shoulder? Oh, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that's what separates them from the rest of us. Um Obviously, there are physical gifts involved, but I think it's their mentality. They're, they're just wired a different way. I think that one thing that a lot of people don't realize is Derek is just as competitive as the people that you mentioned, and I would put Tiger Woods in that group as well. Mm-hmm. They, they just view things differently. Everything is competition. It, it's at the core of who they are. Um, it defines who they are. And there's a particular edge and intensity that you can feel immediately when they're talking about competition. It's it's just like they become two different people. So, yeah, I think that's just at the heart of, of, you know, it's cliche, but it's the heart of a champion in many ways. And it's what drives them. And I don't think that they can ever separate themselves from it. So I think that that also makes them unique. One other thing that makes the greats unique, Randy, is this inner knowing. And one of my biggest takeaways from the first episode, which was outstanding, and if people in St. Louis haven't seen it yet, you need to go catch up on episode one before episode two tonight, was that Derek Jeter seemingly always knew that this was going to be who he was ultimately going to become. He knew, I'm going to be the shortstop of the New York Yankees. He told everybody that growing up. And it felt almost as when he got the 
recall when he got drafted that he was excited, but he didn't really let it out because he almost expected it. And I read Tom the book on Tom Brady, and same thing. He always knew that he was going to be this quarterback, regardless of what everyone around him said. So I, I, I'm wondering if that was surprising to you, that when you were learning about Derek Jeter, that it almost seemed like he always knew that this was his destiny. No, because I think along with his competitiveness, his confidence is what sets him apart. I think that, and you'll find out more about this in episode two tonight, his confidence is almost elite. I want to say almost, it is elite. I mean, he, he just has this unwavering confidence in himself that I think rubs off on everyone around him. And he just has like a true belief in himself. And I think that starts with his parents. They created an environment where, as they say in the first episode, can't was almost treated like a curse word. I think that there were, he grew up in an environment where anything was possible, but it had to be earned. So I think that that instilled a confidence in him that, well, if I think I can do this, it's going to happen just because that's what I've been told. So I think that, you know, being a, being a part of an environment that was positive and fostered um, going after like whatever your goal is and making sure that you're on the path to achieve those goals. It, it's no surprise that he expected it because I think that that was how he was raised, that if you want something, you can actually go after it and get it. So I think it's a reflection of how he was raised and the great family that he has. Hey, Randy, I want to localize this a little bit. Joe Torrey is a member of the Cardinals Hall of Fame. He's revered here locally, and he'll be introduced into the documentary tonight. How important was Joe Torrey for Derek Jeter? Oh, Derek says that Joe is his second dad. I think that having Joe Torrey allowed Derek to be himself and also allowed the team to embrace Derek. It wasn't in an environment where Derek was getting hazed or treated like a rookie. He was treated on equal footing like everyone else. And I think that that starts with Joe Torrey. Joe knew that uh, Derek was most likely going to be the starting shortstop. He accepted it. And Joe was immediately impressed with Derek when Jeter said, you know, I have to earn this. And I think that those are the the things and the the attitude that Joe was looking for. And they they just bonded. It was a perfect union. I mean, I know he's revered in St. Louis, but uh, he's just as revered here in New York for all of his success. But I think part of it was allowing Derek to be himself. You know, he was the young guy, but he, he let Derek thrive and put him in positions where Derek can make adjustments on a major league level. And then when he took off, it was embraced. Randy, there's no better feeling as somebody who's interviewing someone or, or trying to make a film and, and extract information than when you hear somebody say something that you haven't heard and you think, wow, that's going to be a big deal. And as a New York guy, you had more familiarity and more of a, a knowledge base on Jeter and the Yankees than I think most people watching this documentary will. But when you were sitting there, was there something that Derek Jeter said or that you learned that made you say, wow, that's going to be a big deal? Well, obviously, the stuff about Alex, because he never really talked about it publicly, um, Alex Rodriguez. Uh, I think Derek speaking so openly about uh, his upbringing as a a biracial kid in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and how it's very clear that influences the way that he views the world and even how he viewed his baseball career. I think um, him talking about his relationship with the media and why he did it and what went into it – And there's also some personal things that uh, I don't want to spoil it for people, but there are a couple personal moments in his life that had a tremendous impact on him, um, including something that happened recently for him in the last couple of years. So um, 
yeah, there there were a bunch of litter throughout. Um, I think that, you know, again, he was open and candid and, and definitely didn't treat me like a beat reporter uh, in front of his locker. So I appreciated it. Randy Wilkins, the story is great. It's the captain about Derek Jeter. Can't wait for episode two tonight. Thanks so much for your time and congratulations on the great work. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That's Randy Wilkins, director of The Captain. Coming up, you're killing me, Smalls, on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's totally killing Smalls right now? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls, with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Mobile on the Run. On the Run is your summertime snack and sip store. It's time for... Killing me, Smalls! Well, guys, last night was the ESPY Awards, and we have a local connection to that. Shout out to Albert Pujols. He is the winner of this year's Muhammad Ali Sports Humanitarian Award. Congratulations to Albert. And here's what he had to say about that. He says, quote, as great as my career has been, my passion is what I do when the season is over, and that is to serve and to give back. That's how I want to be remembered. And as I tweeted last night, guys, a man who talks the talk and walks the walk when it comes to service, Albert is somebody that actually lives this life. And we see it in St. Louis, uh, not only what he does here locally, but around the world. He really dedicates himself to service, and he's so deserving of this honor, and I'm so glad that he was able to get it last night. Me too. And a couple of things. Number one, Joe Buck has been in L.A. getting ready for this for a week, and he knew they've rehearsed this a lot, and Joe choked up when he was introducing Albert. Mm -hmm. And then to get the nation to get an idea of what Albert has accomplished off the field during the course of his career is really heartening to me because what he's done for people in the Dominican Republic, building school, helping build schools. And then you think about all the work that he's done on behalf of Down syndrome kids and parents here in our area. It's really great that uh, the the nation gets a chance to see what he has accomplished off the field. And that's one thing about Albert Pujols that even when he was away from St. Louis, when he was playing for the Angels and the Dodgers, he continued to pour into St. Louis. A lot of athletes, when they leave town, they'll take their foundation to whatever city they're playing in, and they forget about the city that they were once in. But Albert consistently was serving St. Louis while he was gone, and I think that that's something that softened the blow for a lot of people, that he still really was connected to and pouring into our city. And the foundation was founded here, has always been based here, and does absolutely fantastic work and will continue to do great work once Albert retires after this season. He's really invested in helping people out. You're killing me, Smalls. We have been waiting for this moment, and it's finally official. The XFL is going to announce on Sunday the cities and the venues for the eight teams that is going to play in the rebooted XFL. Well, if they're going to reveal venues, that tells me they aren't going to do a USFL thing where they're going to play all their games in one venue. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it's it's not two venues. Hopefully it is eight different venues, and it'd be a surprise. It'd be a real upset if the Dome wasn't the host for one team, and hopefully they'll still be called the Battlehawks. If they aren't, we riot. Yeah, I'm with you. If you're bringing the XFL back to St. Louis, it can only be the Battlehawks. You already bought the helmets, right? Caw-caw! caw Yeah, you have to do that. You have to do yeah. it. It'll be interesting to see. They've got six months. You look at MLS and how long... MLS has been around and preparing for next March. 
and they'll literally have six months before their first game here in St. Louis. It'll be interesting to see how they go about logistically selling tickets, getting integrated into the community, doing the PR work. They don't really respond from a PR standpoint that much, at least so far. I'll be really interested to see how much they know about St. Louis and how much St. Louis knows about them by the time they kick off. You're killing me, Smalls! I hope they've done their research, is Uh, all I'm saying. You're killing me, Smalls! Thank you, Matt. So, it's SEC Media Days, Randy, and we're starting to hear some storylines coming out about college football. Kentucky quarterback Will Levis has made some headlines. I am not a coffee snob. I am not one of these people that can only have certain beans. I don't measure it. I don't do the pour-over. But I like a good cup of joe. And Will Levis is on my list after I found out what he does to his coffee. Will Levis, quarterback at the University of Kentucky, and I have been known to put mayonnaise in my coffee sometimes. Oh, you get this. No, God, please, no, no! That's right. This young man puts mayonnaise in his coffee. How would somebody think of that? They're deranged. Yeah, that is psychopathic. That's really just not a good thing. I'm almost afraid for Mizzou to play Kentucky because this man is nuts. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I can tell you this. I would like coffee less with mayonnaise in it. Of course. Why would you ever want mayonnaise in a beverage? I have no idea how he thought of this. Is it kind of like the butter, like the stick of butter in the coffee? Like like you put like a a stick of fat and you put like a a spoonful of fat in the coffee and it makes it taste better, I guess. That's all really mayonnaise is. Like, I wonder if it's in the same line. I don't know what they're doing in Massachusetts. That's all I know. He grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. I don't know what's going on over there on the East Coast. That's all I know. Uh, This is just disgusting. And, you know... Maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. You know how some guys, they like the cold tub because they like the pain or they like to practice in 100 degree temps because they they like the pain and they want to make yeah. sure they're ready. Maybe he's just trying to make himself so miserable that whatever happens on game day feels all right. There's got to be something more there. There's something happened in his childhood. Something hurt him. <laughs> who hurt you, <laughs> sir? Will, who hurt you? <laughs> killing me, Smalls! And finally, guys, we talked yesterday about how A's starter Paul Blackburn had to fly commercial. The A's did not pony up to send him private to the All-Star game. The Astros caught wind of it and said, no, no, hop on our PJ. You can fly down with all of our stars down to L.A. Well, it came out yesterday that Juan Soto got the same treatment. His agent confirmed that the Washington Nationals refused to charter him a flight to the Home Run Derby after he rejected their $440 million contract extension. He actually ended up flying commercial. He arrived in LA at 1.30 in the morning and then went on to win the home run derby. That's ridiculous. Come on. The Lerner family has more than enough money to fly him on one of their planes to LA. And that's just when he rejects that contract offer that's just fostering bad will between he and the team what do you think is worse not flying someone private to the all-star game out of spite or out of cheapness spite it's worse i agree and by the way scott boris i know you have a private plane you could have done it wait excellent point yeah you're getting eight to ten maybe more percent of all of these yeah. mega deals i'm sure you have a plane yeah so he could have flown one up to dc and got it back to la and he was there yeah. So wh- how did he arrive? Scott Boris is not flying economy he is to not. L.A. Exactly. But well, I just thought this was a jerk move by the yeah. Washington Nationals. Yeah, but he Grow lives up. in L.A. He, he wasn't even using the plane. He lives in Newport Beach. He That's right. Just, he could have just flown the plane up to Washington, picked up Juan, and brought him back. That's true. But these, these people from Washington, they need to grow up.
This is a really yeah, immature move and a bad look. Weak, weak sauce, as we say. Thanks, Michelle. You got it. Coming up next on 101 ESPN, one of uh, our favorite St. Louisans and a guy that I don't, he doesn't like me to call him a hero, but he's a hero. Rocky Sickman is next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Michelle and Randy with you, and Michelle, you are well aware of, and I think everybody that listens every day is aware of my association with Folds of Honor. I I love what they do. I love the mission of Folds of Honor. What they do is provide scholarships to the the family members, spouses, and children of people, military, that are are lost in the line of duty. And it's an incredible mission. We had the golf tournament a few weeks ago, and... Rocky Sickman, who is notable here in St. Louis, a a great Marine, worked for Anheuser-Busch for a long time, and now is so involved and really kind of driving the the ship for Folds of Honor, kind enough to join us in studio. Rocky, it's always good to see you. Randy, it's awesome to see you, especially on a beautiful morning like this. Yeah, this is... Michelle, Matt, you also. It's fun. I want to know how you, and we're going to talk about your, your days, it was... 40 years ago now, uh, when you were a hostage in the Iranian hostage crisis. But how did you get involved with Folds of Honor? You know, it's uh, synchronicity. Uh, I'm the director of military sales. Think about that. There's a job that a a guy sells beer to the military. It was the best job ever. Uh, When I got out, um, when I came home 41 years ago, my girlfriend, now my wonderful wife, asked me, she said, Rocky, you got to either choose me or the military. I chose wisely. I chose her. <laughs> I went uh, went to work for Camo X mm-hmm. uh, for a period of a year and then had the opportunity to come on board with Budweiser. And in that uh, Budweiser, they had a position that sold beer to the military. My wife knew that I missed that military connection. Once you're in military, it, it's one of those things that connects. So one morning, as a director of military SEALs, security calls and says, hey, there's this skinny guy down here in a flight uniform in 202 in the lobby, and he wants to talk to somebody about a military program. So being a director of military sales, I had to go down, and I just so happened to be at home, and went down, and sure enough, here's a skinny little pilot. I uh, found out that his name was Major Rooney, which is now Lieutenant Colonel Rooney. Mm-hmm. But he tells me his story. I tell him my story. And it wasn't until three years later that uh, we, Budweiser uh, and Folds of Honor, uh, we started raising dollars, and to this day, yeah, team um, Budweiser and AB Wholesalers have raised over $20 million for wow. Folds of Honor. So, I mean, since 2007, uh, Folds of Honor has um, raised uh, dollars for 35,000 scholarships. Um, that's $160 million. 41% of our recipients are minority, and every dollar that comes in, 91 cents goes into that scholarship. So it's very very lean and mean. That's fantastic. By the way, I want you to tell the story of spring training. So you you come to KMOX, Mr. Highland sends you down to spring training, right? And you told me a couple of years ago, I wasn't aware of this, how you came to know Joe Buck. So, yes, I, I'm, I'm, in fact, it's my first week at uh, X down there at the, at the building, and I'm called up to Mr. Highland's office, and I'm thinking, I've just been here for one week. What did I do? And so I go up, and Mr. Highland, as you remember, and I don't know if you guys knew Mr. Highland, but a very, um, very sincere, very stern person. And so I go into his office, and he's a very tall gentleman. Rocky, how do you like the job? I said, sir, I, I love it. Thank you. 
And uh, he goes, sit down, we got something for you. And all of a sudden, he pushes the old buttons. This is 1981. Pushed the button and says, yeah, send Jack in. I'm sitting there, Jack, 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 Buck. And all of a sudden, the door opens up, and I look around, and sure enough, here's Jack Buck. Because I was a little kid growing up in Krakow, Missouri, with a little transistor radio underneath my uh, pillow with a wire and listening to baseball games. I mean, with Joe Buck. Or, excuse me, Jack Buck and Mike Shannon. And so all of a sudden he goes, now Rocky, sit down. Mike, sit down. Or Jack, sit down. So Rocky, on behalf of CBS and uh, Budweiser, because Budweiser owned the Cardinals, we're going to send you down to spring training, and Mr. Buck is going to be your host. So for a week, Mr. Buck woke us up in the morning, got us breakfast, took us to the game. I sat up in the booth with Mr. Buck and Jack Buck and Mike Shannon, and at night we would go out, but my little brother had to stay behind because he was underage. And so who was with him but Joe Buck? And so to this day, whenever I see Joe, Joe, you always ask, how's your little brother Kurt doing? <laughs> so it was the best time, and he goes, Rocky, it's not over. You're going to throw in the first pitch, wow. 1981. So I come home, and again, you guys, being held hostage for 441 days, 444 days. It's one of those things that... The only thing he had were positive memories of growing up, and sports were everything, you know, the Cardinals and uh, football and, and, and everything. And so coming home, they found out that I loved baseball. And so I got to throw in the first pitch after being with Jack Buck, Mike Shannon, and I'm behind Gussie Bush on the Clydesdales. And so I go around Bush Stadium, which my dad built in 1966, mm -hmm. I think it was. He laid concrete. And so we all got into a, a, a station wagon back in 1966. There were seven of us in that station wagon. We went down because he got free tickets. For Anyway, long story short, we go around the uh, stadium, 1981. I get off uh, out of my convertible. I'm starting to walk out. And all of a sudden, uh, Mr. Bush, Gussie Bush, he's on home plate. goes, now, Rocky, come here. Come here, Rocky. I got something for you. And so I'm thinking, he's got something for me. So I go up to home plate, and, you know, the whole stadium's packed. And he goes, Rocky, on behalf of Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner of baseball, I'd like to present you this lifetime membership baseball pass, which was a gold pass that was given to all 52 of the hostages. Uh, so I still have it. And Marty Hendon, back in the days, mm -hmm. he used to be there, and he was my guy. And so I haven't used it because I've been traveling uh, so much all over the country. And so, but one of these days when I retire... Uh, I will hopefully uh, use that. But yeah, great memories of those guys. Yeah, you need to utilize that, Rocky. <laughs> <I know, laughs> that seems I like know. the golden ticket. You need to utilize that. It well, is. I want to talk about your, your military experience and your military career. You were just sharing with us before we came on the air that you joined right out of high school. What was it about the allure of the military that made you want to get involved? You know, my parents, Michelle, they taught me three things. Uh, love of family, love of faith, and love of country. There wasn't a time in, uh, we grew up in Krakow, Missouri, which was population 50 at that time. I always said in Washington and Union uh, were on each side of us. In Washington, my parents were always in the American Legion. And so whenever there was a parade, we would be in a parade holding the American flag. I got to raise the flag at St. Gertrude's, uh, you know, Catholic school, uh, Washington High School. And so it was one of those things. And so I, I was captain my senior year of football, and my coach was looking for a, a scholarship, small school and instead i just decided you know what i want to see the world i don't you know I, I know that there's more out i mean if you had a hot date you would drive into st louis and go to red lobster that was a big date <laughs> great and roles so, yeah <laughs> and so anyway sure enough i joined the uh, military my father and mother could not believe it and 
But uh, yeah, it was about uh, my father served uh, in the army. My brother served during Vietnam. And so I wanted to serve. But I also wanted to see the world and the world I did see. So I, I want to go back to November of 1979. And I, I'm, I just turned 17. So I'm watching on TV and we're seeing these horrific images of Iranian people storming the U.S. Embassy. You were at the U.S. Embassy. But this is just a sea of people with giant Ayatollah Khomeini signs. So there's a lot of people, I would suggest most people probably driving around, are are too young to remember what happened. Give us your perspective, because all we saw was the TV images. Give us your perspective of, of that day when the embassy was taken over by the, the Iranians. Yeah, and again, at that point in time, uh, I wanted to see the world, but I wanted to be a, a Marine security guard, uh, which was a very elite duty. Um, in fact, I went by Quantico yesterday, where I graduated in 1979. And so I get to Tehran, and we had heard that the Shah had fled the country. He was the dictator up to January of 1979. And so a new uh president, would you say, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, a religious leader from uh, France, came into power, into ex- from exile. And so um, the Shah was allowed into the United States two weeks prior to November 4th. We had uh, alerted the State Department, if you allow the Shah in, um, one of three things is going to happen. And sure enough, during President Carter's meeting, um, weeks earlier, he said, you know, what are you going to do to a staff? What are you going to do if we allow the Shah in and the Iranians take our people hostage? And sadly enough, two weeks later, that's what happened. Uh, we used to have 20,000 Americans here, Randy, up to January of 1979. When I got there, we had 65 Americans. And as an American embassy, that territory, it was a 23-acre compound. It, it's American soil. And the outside perimeter is guarded by the host government. That morning, and I got pictures, and you can get pictures off the internet, uh, pictures of people coming over the wall, and I'll never forget, I was 30 yards away when, I mean, those chants of death to America, and all of a sudden, you know, they were going on for two weeks prior, I'm walking into the motor pole gate, my walkie-talkie, recall, recall, look at the front gate, and they're coming over. Back then, I could run pretty fast, because we carried no weapons. Our weapons were in the chancery. The Marines did not uh, provide security to the grounds. They provided to the building and to the ambassador. So we got back. There was nobody at that front gate on the morning of November 4th, Mm. 1970. I will never forget that. We secured, out of 13 Marines, um, seven Marines secured that American embassy for four hours waiting for the host government Mm. to come to provide protection. And I can tell you, the first thing I'll never forget is no security at the front gate. And the second thing I will never forget, and I will tell every American until I die, is they break through the basement window. And who do they bring in first? Er, Iranian women in black shadows. And they're using them as shields. And Billy and I, Billy Gallegos uh, from Pueblo, Colorado, another Marine, we're downstairs, gas mask on. I'm 22 years of age. And you know what? Our orders were being screamed, don't fire, don't retaliate. But they knew that we weren't going to shoot unarmed innocent women up front. But I kind of, my wife hates this when I say this. I regret not ever pulling that trigger because I'm here to tell you that the war on terrorism with Iran started November 4th, 1979. Mm-hmm. And it's not ever stopped. And so had we retaliated, sure, I probably would not be sitting here. Plus, I probably would have been the Marine that gone down to create World War Three or whatever. But... Um, we popped tear gas. 
we got them out of the building, went up to the very top. We were stalling. We get up to the very top. We uh, barricade the door. Uh, people had already been taken. Out of the 60, there are about 30 now that are uh, behind, enjoying what that American flag represents, and that's freedom. I mean, until you have it stripped from you, do you really understand how important it is? And all of a sudden, about four hours into it, uh, President Carter comes on and says, you release yourself, give yourself up, and we'll get this resolved with diplomacy. Because it was going to be 18 hours before the U.S. was going to be able. So a lot of things have happened. The United States now has reactionary force uh, measures in place. So if any embassy is heard or smell any uh, type of uh, danger, people are on board. So, yeah, that morning, uh, November 4th, 1979, um, you know, we as hostages were stripped our freedom, our dignity, and our pride for the wow. next 444 days. So you're you're taken hostage. Tell us about what happens next. What are what are the conditions like? Yeah, the conditions. I can tell you, Michelle uh, and team. I mean, we were tied to a chair for the next 30 days. One week, I was tied in a bed with the Air Force officer. Uh, my feet were tied to his uh, wrist. My wrists were tied to his feet, and I laid in the bed for a week. Other than that, you were tied into a chair. At night, they would tie you onto the floor, your wrists, your ankles. Other than your interrogations, were you allowed to speak? And you were put into a corner of a room. And I, I was talking about earlier, growing up in, in Krakow, Missouri, and, and, and you know, playing sports in Washington. I mean, I went back as far as I could uh, playing every sports, ice skating on Besties Pond, sleigh riding down a Holds Hill, eating my mother's pancakes because. If you've ever gone through a traumatic time, your listeners out there, you don't feel like eating. I mean, here you are held hostage, um, and but you know that the military is out there, but you then sit back and say, it's 1979. Uh, and those Vietnam veterans that are out there, I'm sitting there in 1979 remembering the Vietnam veterans when they came home in 75, they were spit on. Nobody cared about them. And now you're 10,000 miles away from home, and if I'd been locked in this room in broken windows, I would hear the traffic there on Olive in the morning. You would hear it peak, you know, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. would go down. And that would be day one. And then day two. And you're sitting there thinking, if nobody cared about them, who's going to care about us? We're just mm -hmm. a small number mm -hmm. of 65 people. The world's going on without you. So it was very lonely. Uh, the first Thanksgiving, first Christmas. You sat there and just reminisced everything that your your parents did. My mother making her homemade bread, you know, getting her turkey and stuffing it, and all the relatives coming over, and you just you cherished that. And then that first Christmas, uh, and then it was New Year's Eve. We were put into a room uh, about the size, double the size of this room. Uh, so imagine, out of four hundred and forty-four days, we went outside seven times out of four hundred forty-four oh, days. Man. And to go to the restroom, even though you're locked in the room, you had to knock. And put a piece of paper underneath the door because you were locked in the offices at the embassy. And so they, they would have to come and blindfold you to go to the restroom, even though you knew where the restroom was. So, I mean, they had complete control. Rocky Sickman with us on 101 ESPN. And before we, and I hate to get to a break, but I want to, I have to imagine that there were a lot of times, because I would feel this way, that you thought, I'm not getting out of here. You, you thought that a lot. But you also, I, like I said, three things my parents taught me, love of family, love of faith. I had never prayed so hard, you guys, in my life. I, I wanted, I was so young, I turned 23 in that, uh, that hole, 
And I just wanted so bad to get out. But yeah, uh, at the very end was most uh, difficult, the uh, 400 uh, after you spent your second Thanksgiving, your second mm-hmm. Christmas. Uh, I can tell you a story, but you might have to go and yeah. break it. We'll, we'll, we'll take the break because <laughs> there's a rescue mission that you talk about a lot yes. that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about how sports played a role in you guys surviving this. And we're, we're going to talk about that as well. Coming up on Carriker and Smallman with Rocky Sickman, American Hero on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Our friend Rocky Sickman is with us. And Rocky, we're getting a ton of response on the text line. And because we do have a captive audience and what you are talking about is so compelling, how can people get involved with Folds of Honor? Absolutely. Here in St. Louis, we have a wonderful chapter uh, led by Doug Mitchell, uh, stlewis.foldsofhonor.org, and they can uh, donate and also get involved with the chapter here in St. Louis. So, And I know that our friends at Schnooks are heavily involved. They they rounded up at the register through the 4th of July and raised a lot of money. Absolutely. QT, which is a big yep. uh, promoter here in the station, mm-hmm. and you guys have done such a great job promoting. Uh, but yeah, it, there's so many. Uh, the Suntrup Automotive Group... Uh, $300,000, I think, that we raised this year, which is a total in the past, for the past four years or so, uh, $700,000 from that golf outing. So wow. we're so blessed to have red, white, and blue people here in the mm-hmm. St. Louis area uh, that get it and understand what that flag represents. So I learned something during the break that I had never heard before. And so throughout that 444 days, we hear about the well, most of the 444 days, the 52 American hostages at the the U.S. Embassy in Iran. And you thought throughout the process there were 65 of you. Tell us that story. It was there were 65 on November 4th. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had breakfast. Uh, I had breakfast uh, that morning. I had just gotten off guard duty at seven o'clock that morning. I'd gone up, cleaned up. I was in civilian clothes and uh, I crossed the street, had breakfast in the the restroom, uh, restaurant there. And at my table were three of those individuals that were rescued by the Canadians that created the movie Argo. We had no idea that four hours later our life would be turned upside down. I go down to the Chancery, and obviously we're taken. But yeah, November 4th, 1979, I knew there were 65. 444 days later, you're, that day comes that you had prayed for, you had cried for, you had hoped for. And they came into our room. They blindfolded us. Uh, they had taken our shoes from us in uh, March of 1980, and we're wearing plastic sandaled shoes. And I remember uh, walking out of the room, and the way that we came into this room from the, was from the right. And instead, the guard took us to the left. And I'm thinking, this is strange. And all of a sudden, I was leading the area. Jerry had his arm on my shoulder. Get to the door. He turns me, and he opens the door, and you feel this cold, fresh air because for 444 days— you're allowed outside seven times. And they only took you out for 15 minutes each time. Mm. To look, I mean, my skin was so pale, was so bad. But that night of January 20th, I walk out and it was snowing. I walk through the snow. They put us onto a vehicle. The vehicle drives off. I remember scraping a, a bush or a tree to the right, jumps a curb. It drives and all of a sudden we made a right-hand turn and you heard the sound of a, a jet engine. And you start your heart is just pounding and you're thinking this is going to be it that we could be going home and all of a sudden they tell us to unblindfold i didn't have glasses then didn't have hearing aids then and you unblindfold and here you are seeing somebody that you hadn't seen because i was in a room 
with two other people, Jerry Plotkin and Billy Gallegos, for 400 days. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they take us one by one, put us onto the airplane. I would not seen a woman in 444 days. And, you know, my icon was my girlfriend, which was my now my wonderful wife. Uh, you've seen the movie Castaway. Mm-hmm. He had a locket. I didn't have a locket. I had a picture of her in my head. And she was, that first 30 days uh, of being tied to a chair, it was the most freaking difficult days of my life. I mean, when you're confined to a, a spot like that, and you're typically running seven miles a day, playing tennis every day, and now you're confined. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many things are going through your head. But she was my icon. I kept her alive. And anyway, they put us onto the airplane, and the girl sits us down in, in broken English. And it's like, this is an American. We find out they're a Jill, Algerian. And all of a sudden, they start closing the door. And we're, wait, wait, where's uh, where's Gene? Where's Kurt? Where's Judy? Where's, where's Debbie? There's not all the people are in here. And they said, no, no, you're the last of the 65. The others were let go a year earlier. We had no idea wow. that other people had been let go and that we were the remaining 52 um, after 444 days. That's amazing. Because you could not, and did you want to leave anybody behind? And so, sure enough, the plane gets to the end of the runway, turns left, turns left again. He comes up, and I can tell you, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the, the mullahs and, and, and the Revolutionary Guard, they took us because they hated the Shah and they hated Salvak. 43 years later, I want to go back and ask them, has Ayatollah Khomeini really been better than the Shah? And is the Revolutionary Guard really better than Salvak? I mean, they're worse to me. Mm-hmm. But that night, um, for 444 days, uh, it was all about mind games. <laughs> I can, I, I got to be politically correct. I got to, you know, speak carefully because my vocabulary here is much better than what it was over there, I can guarantee it. <laughs> but that night of January 20th, 1981, nobody's nobody's excited. I'm wearing a pair of pants that my left cheek is completely hanging out of. Uh, I'd worn for over 200 days. And the plane gets to the end of the runway and the guy's got his foot on the brake and he starts accelerating and all of a sudden it comes back down to an idol. And you're sitting there thinking there's just screwing with this one last time. Little do we know, back home, was the inauguration. The mm-hmm. Islamic Republic of Iran, they told us in our interrogations, it is not you, the American people, that we ate. It's your government, but we will use you to humiliate your government. So what were they doing? They were holding this until 20 minutes after President Carter. That was 41 years ago, you guys, and they are still doing it to our government. They have humiliated every American president since, and here they are going through it again. Yeah. And it hurts, and so that's why I regret Telling my wife that I wish I wish I could have pulled that trigger yeah. and changed everything. Rocky, I, I can't imagine the fear and despair that you felt during those 444 days, but you shared with us that to not let that overcome you, you would think of your mother's pancakes and your girlfriend at the time. What was that reunion like when you oh. finally were able to see them? Because I know this was unfathomable for you, but I can't imagine being a parent or having my loved one over there. It had to be gut-wrenching for them as well. And that's, you guys, that's where I came home and found out that eight individuals lost their life for my life. And those individuals all had families. And this is where it gets really tough um, because I have a family now. And I'm sitting there thinking, had my son, as Matt knows, Spencer, um, been taken hostage? As my father and my mother, for 444 days, the media lived in their yard, um, but didn't come to find out that eight people lost their life for my life. Uh, it was just, it, it was so difficult, and it's something that's hard, and that's why I, I have to do this. When Randy called and said, Rocky, 
Absolutely. My my story is just part of the story. The families, my parents, my brothers and sisters, those that were on the rescue operation that had the guts to try. I mean, a rescue attempt had never been done like this. They were in the middle of the country of Iran and eight people burnt to death. And I got to meet the special operators uh, last year and in the past 41 years. And I'm going to see some more coming up in September. But they tell me that night it was the most difficult night because not only were they able not to come get us, but they had to leave their buddies burn in the desert. And so, yeah, there, you guys, it's there's so much the trauma and, and by the way whenever i refer to rocky as a hero he you yeah. always say no those guys those eight guys those, those are eight, the heroes absolutely yeah. those guys and those individuals that were on the rescue operation had the guts to try they were the heroes okay. so set the scene for us when you had the reunion with your family yeah, where I, were you how did that happen so i make my first phone call home when i get so we we flew uh, the plane finally took off and i can tell you nobody was saying a word uh you could just hear the sound we get into Turkish airspace, and the pilot came on and said, two Turkish, or two fighters were escorting this, uh, that we knew then we were we were freed. And it was, it was uh, incredible. Um, we flew to Athens, Greece. Athens, Greece, the pilot and the stewardesses, they get off the airplane because they had been on that airplane for three days waiting for us. The, the United States paid the Islamic Republic of Iran $8 billion dollars. For our release, they sat there. The money was supposed to be. Uh, the money was delivered on January seventeenth. We were supposed to be uh, let go, but they waited until January twentieth. We went from Athens to Algiers, Algiers to Germany. I call home, speak to my mom and dad, and uh, my dad goes, "Rocky Jill's here." And I said, oh, "She waited," and he goes, "Well, she wants to talk to you." And I'm thinking, well, "Shit, that doesn't sound good." <laughs> I mean, she's probably getting married, or and she's a beautiful girl. We were so young. She was eighteen. I was twenty two. And uh, she gets on. That's when she said, Rocky, either me or the military. And and mm-hmm. so it was, I think, about seven days later, the government wanted us to do a, you know, and a, a simple transition. Instead of my whole family, it was just my parents uh, at West Point. And that's why I, I love to go to West Point to this day, to the Army, Navy, uh, or the Army Games, um, to see that it's a beautiful location. Uh, but there were like 200,000 people I lined up on the road in Wiesbaden, Germany at four o'clock in the morning. And then we get here and it's like, this had not happened to the Vietnam veterans. Why all of a sudden was it happening to us? And so we went from West Point after seeing my mom and dad back into Andrews Air Force Base. And there's a video, Michelle, of, uh, of Jill running up to me at the airport mm-hmm. um, on online somewhere. There's so much information out there. Um, and so, but yeah, that was uh, a reunion that, uh, you know, came together. And, uh, you know, my parents have passed away 13 years ago, I think it's been. And so it's one of those things that you just, uh, thank goodness that they gave me that upbringing of, uh, you know, you know, love of family, love of faith, and love of country. Rocky, I want to get two one-minute answers from you. Number one, talk about the significance of the sporting news at that time, the St. Louis-based sporting news for you in captivity. Yeah, so again, we received no information. I can tell you, if you can imagine uh, being locked in this room and you hear the guard out there listening to BBC, because uh, that's what they listen to, you would sit there and you would put your ear down so far to try to hear 
information. So the only thing they gave us was sporting news information. So we're put into Evin prison after we find out, well, we didn't find out that there had been a rescue operation until after. But one day of April, they came running into our room, and whenever that door opened, you jumped because you didn't know if they were going to come in and start shooting or what. They came in, handcuffed us, put us into a vehicle, and they drove us from the night of April 25th because they found the charred bodies in the CH-53 still standing in the desert. And so they thought the United States was coming to get us. So they left us from there to uh, Isfahan to Shiraz. We didn't know those locations until we had been there. They told us where we were, brought us back and put us in a vein prison. And it's October. And all of a sudden we're reading a sporting news magazine. And out of one sentence, due to the death of the Shah of Iran, it's like, whoa, whoa, you guys, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because the whole reason why we were there was because they wanted the Shah. He's dead. And all of a sudden we went to the door and we pounded on the door and the guard came and said, gee, what? The Shah is dead. Why are we here? No, we do not believe he's dead. We could not see his body. So I can tell you at that point in time, second Thanksgiving, second Christmas, it got to the point, you guys, whenever you would go to the restroom, you 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 really didn't care anymore. I mean, it got to the point that, you know, you asked that question earlier. It was at the very end that they would take us blindfolded, just take us to the restroom, come back, open a door, and throw you into the room. Well, before they grab the door and close it, you would grab the door and swing it open and walk out in the hallway. And they would come with their weapons drawn, and you would put the weapon in your mouth and just say, pull the trigger. Because you'd been there for 400 days, and you just you, you didn't want to live anymore right. in this. And that's why they had a lock us like a freaking animal at the zoo. And... So it wasn't until January 20th that uh, we realized that, no, freedom was there. And then the other one, sports-wise, and there's a documentary about this, an L.A. Times writer got Alex a recording. Payne. Yeah. Alex Payne, yeah. Alex Payne, supposedly, and again, I, I know this after coming home, that this guy, he remained over there, and he recorded the Super Bowl. Uh, and so he had begged the, the guards and there were some good guards and i mean the iranian people are wonderful people the the, the mullahs are the thugs and the revolutionary guard but the guards would come in and say here and they had a um, it was a cassette tape and they would play it uh and you could hear the um they didn't play the national anthem of course uh and <laughs> want that uh, but they they played uh, the 1980 uh super bowl Wow. Uh, that so time. that was Steelers yeah. Rams, I believe. Steelers LA Rams. I, I, yeah, because I, it was an LA LA Times writer, and yes. I think that was it. He got the LA right. broadcast, right? Yeah, and I, I can tell you that uh, it was one of those things that you you cherish that moment. Brings you back home. Oh my gosh! Right? Yeah, because I mean, all my memories of of growing up. That's as you sat there by yourself. That was the only thing that kept you uh, glued together. Were your positive memories mm-hmm. of growing up. Yeah. So we've uh, we're going to take one final break here. Michelle has another question. I have one more, and then uh, Rocky Sickman, kind enough to join us for this hour with amazing memories of his days as a hostage. Four hundred and forty-four days as a hostage in Iran, forty-one years ago. Uh, Rocky, with more next on one hundred and one ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on one hundred and one ESPN.
Eric Ernst Bowman on 101 ESPN, and we are honored by the presence of Rocky Sickman in studio for this hour. And so you, you get the plane ride home, you wind up in Germany, you wind up back in uh, America, and then you wind up back in St. Louis. And I do vividly remember the images, Rocky, of your trek once you got from Lambert back to Krakow, Missouri. What are your memories of that trip back? I'll never forget boarding uh, Ozark Airlines, if you remember that airline. Mm-hmm. They had painted a yellow ribbon around the fuselage of the airplane mm-hmm. so that I could fly home. I fly home, did a flyby around the tire. They had a yellow ribbon. I mean, all these things. The only thing I wanted to do was get home and eat my mom's homemade uh, <laughs> bread and, and just relax. But I, we land, and there were thousands of people. Um, and, of course, thousands, a lot of those people were my cousins. At my wedding, my wife and I, 43 years ago, uh, 41 years ago, we invited 850 people, 750 people showed. Wow. wow. But a lot of them were relatives. We went across the street, and they said, Rocky, uh, you have a press conference. And I said, what's that? Press conference. What do, what do I do? And so, no, I'm serious. I was thrown into this. Yeah. The whole area, the 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 ballroom was full of press. And so it, it started, you know, then and uh, then I boarded a, a Mid-America bus, I believe it was, from Marriott and drove all the way out and all the way from Lambert Airport, all the way out 80 some miles to Krakow, Missouri. There were people lined up. I mean, it was just incredible. My father drove a, a concrete mixer uh, at Valley Park, and all of his trucks, his buddy's trucks, were all parked out there, flashing oh, those lights. Cool. So it's a very meaningful. I mean, you guys, for my parents, God love them, what they went through. It was incredible. But yeah, um, it was then a, a start. And uh, so here I am, 41 yeah. years later. Amazing. Well, Rocky, last question for me. We hear this a lot from the men and women who courageously serve and protect our country that when you go through an experience that's traumatic, there's after effects there. It's not as if I'm no longer a hostage anymore. The chapter is closed. That experience doesn't leave you. So once all of the hustle and bustle of the return and uh, the, the big he's back, there's a press conference. What was that transition period like back to American life after the dust had settled? It's never changed, Michelle. You're right. It, it doesn't. And especially after you're hearing stories of eight people giving their life for their life, it's like, that's my mission. When I feel like, you know, oh, you, you have only a couple hours of sleep and you think back of those guys that flew through the night of April 24th, the land in the desert in the morning of April 25th to come get me. They didn't, you know, they weren't complaining about sleep. I mean, so I, I do it in memory of those guys and make sure that I, I tell the story in, uh, in memory of them and know that freedom is not free. Uh, but it is a transition. My good wife, like I said, I told you, if it, it, it wasn't for her, I'd be wearing military green right now. I mean, she's, you know, uh, done everything. I'd be in a ditch right now if it wasn't for my wife, Phil. Uh, so it, it, but it's a, a continuous process. Um, and I might look normal on the out, outside, but I'm not normal on the inside. Uh, and you don't ever forget it. Yeah. Well, you are an American hero, and we appreciate you. We, we love you. And we're so thankful, A, that you are here with us and doing so much to help so many. 
uh, with, with the platform that you have. And can't thank you enough for stopping by today. No, thank you. And again, I, I hope everyone, uh, they look into Folds of Honor here at the St. Louis chapter, a great organization that provides scholarships to families of fallen, disabled military. And again, like me, I'll never forget those eight. Freedom is not free, and we're just blessed with red, white, and blue here in St. Louis. Area. Absolutely. So Thanks, thank Rocky. You. Thanks, guys. The great Rocky Sickman joining us in studio here on 101 ESPN. Tim McKernan and Ajax coming up. Great job by our producer engineer, the one, the only Matthew Rocchio. Pleasure. And Michelle, this was very fun today and very enlightening. It was. And can't thank you enough, Rocky, not only for your service, but for joining us today. Thank you, Michelle. Until tomorrow morning at 7, have a great day, St. Louis. You've been listening to the Character and Smallman Podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama. Nick Saban citing some hypothetical point spreads to prove his point that the tie deserve a spot in the college football playoffs holds little substance when you consider Bama's best win is over Texas. No, the committee got it right. TCU had a great season with far more ranked wins than Bama and didn't deserve to lose their spot after playing a surging Kansas State in a championship game. And Ohio State, while not playing some of their best ball later in the season, was still 12-0 until they came face-to-face with my Wolverines. While the college football playoff system isn't nowhere near as good as it could be, it's better than what we had. And in a few years, it will be better for all of college football. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. And don't forget, BetOnline for the NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.